welcome everybody to Video Night, our special Halloween edition, the perfect Halloween. <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, I had something caught in my throat there. Uh, this is Video Night. Every year we do uh, a handful of episodes where we have a special guest come on, and they curate a list known as the perfect Halloween playlist. Things they suggest to you to check out on Halloween, or all of October, I mean there's no rules, you can watch it all the time. Um, so this week, our uh, guest is uh, the host of TV Guidance Counselor and stand-up comedian entertainer, uh, Ken Reed. How are you, sir? It sounded uh, like you had a Eastern European stuck in your throat there for a yes. moment. That sounds like filthy porn. <laughs> it does. There probably is a pornography, as I like to call them, called Eastern European in your throat. Uh, <laughs> and it's probably up to, you know, number 47 now. Uh, I have done in the past, I did a, maybe two years ago, an episode of TV Guidance Council where it was just me solo doing uh, recommendations from my Halloween television list. But this time it'll be it'll be just movies, which will be interesting. I've been doing all month 31 movies for October, so I'm kind of paring that down to about 10. So I think the approach I'm going to go with is some of the more obscure ones that people may not watch every year. So like, you know, the Halloween series is probably on everybody's radar, maybe even things like Phantasm, Night of the Creeps. That kind of stuff's probably already on their radar, so I'm gonna kind of go uh, a little more obscure. I, yeah, I think there's um, if it's on AMC every single Halloween, you know, there's no really need to recommend that because you know you've had plenty of opportunity to hear about this and get the, the chance to see it. Um, and that's kind of the point of video night. Sometimes I go off into mainstream films, but for the most part, it's about finding these little tiny movies that somehow either they bombed or they never really got released uh, wide enough for people to notice them and, you know, get that out to people and say, hey, this is a good movie. Check this out. Yeah, and I'm going to go. My first one is actually a, a pretty new movie, and it was a Nickelodeon movie, and it was a tween movie. It came out maybe four years ago called Fun Size. You're telling have me you about seen this that? one, and I have still have not seen this one. It's very good. It, it's essentially like more of a, a female-centric, uh, slightly more modern film version of The Adventures of Pete and Pete. It's very Nickelodeon, but it's fun. It's it's pretty harmless and has a great Halloween atmosphere. It's a good movie to start off the night with. So, you know, if you have some kids around, it's not horrific. It's just a good sort of atmosphere setter. Yeah, I think... Uh... I think Pete was one of my favorite TV shows growing up, and if it has any of that flavor, I'm totally watching that. Yeah, and side note, Pete and Pete's episode, Halloween episode from season two, Halloweenies, is essential television viewing if, you're, if you need a sorbet between the movies. Uh, so yeah, if you like Pete and Pete, uh, you know, it's not exactly like it, but it, it has that sort of vibe, and it's, uh, it was a very under-the-radar, more modern movie, and it's well worth watching. Then I would say uh, there's a movie that I thought was well-known, but I've learned recently many people who I thought would have seen this movie are unfamiliar with it, and that's Lady in White. Oh, yeah. You know what's funny is I remember the trailers playing on Nickelodeon of all things. They used to have a TV show where they would uh, show you trailers, and the kids would do reviews of it, tell you whether or not it was like family-friendly and safe and stuff like that. And I remember seeing yep. that, and I was like, Lady in White, and it didn't play anywhere near where I lived. I've seen it on video a couple yeah. times, like available to rent, but just something about it just didn't grab my interest. Yeah, and the show you're talking about is called Rated K for Kids. How do you remember uh, that was, it was I don't know, man. I don't know. But Lady in White is is uh, is set in 1963. It's set at Halloween. Lucas Haas is in it. It has uh, an amazing Alex Rocco performance as a nice guy. Um, it's kind of a ghost story, murder mystery meets the Wonder Years, and is a little darker than Fun Size, but again, is is kind of a nice transition into the more horrific things. That that's a great movie. 
Yeah, it's funny. Lady uh, White came I... out at a time where it was all slasher films and like you know uh, wisecracking villains. Lady in White seems like it's something more from like the last ten years. Yeah, it's a much more gentle movie. Frank uh, Langella, I think, is the guy who made it, or Lelogia. Uh He made a movie before that that was sort of a, a, a gay, heavy metal, horror slasher, Satanist movie that is pretty great, but is very, very, very different from Lady in White. Lady in White's a very sort of nostalgic, gentle, it's, it's almost uh, has the same kind of vibe as like Stand By Me to it. Uh, and it's a it's a good movie, and the Halloween sort of representation is very very classic. Okay, hold on, let's rewind a second. What movie are you talking about? Is it Black Roses? No, no, Black Roses is uh, John Fasano. Uh, the the movie that he made that's very similar to Lady in White is another movie that I thought a lot of people had seen, and for whatever weird reason, people haven't. It's I think he's only made two movies, and I don't know why because he was kind of a guy that I remember reading a lot about in things like Fangoria as being like the next, uh, you know, like he could have been sort of Frank Darabont or someone like yeah. that. And I don't know what he's been doing since then, but uh, his, and I, I might be wrong, but his very first movie and is called Fear No Evil. Have you seen that movie? No. Oh, Fear No Evil. I think it's from 1982 or 1983. And it is fucked up. <laughs> uh <laughs> It is, uh, it is, it is a really bizarre movie, and it's, it's, um, it's sort of like Evil Speak. If you've seen Evil Speak, yeah, that's uh, with uh, Clint Howard, right? Yeah, it's sort of like that without the computer aspect of it, and a lot weirder. It's a good movie. It, it, it would actually be a great adjunct movie to put on this list, but uh, Lady in White is is a lot more um, family friendly. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm looking this up right now. Fear New Evil. I know Anchor Bay put that out on DVD, but I think it's out of print now, so it might be a little hard to find. Yeah, it might be streaming somewhere, but it's worth hunting down, and the Anchor Bay DVD had a great uh, commentary track as well. Alright, I went off on a tangent there. Sorry, everybody. Let's back to the list. No, uh, and then for the third choice, I'm going with Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, that is that in... makes so many people's lists for recommendations of the Perfect Halloween episodes. We've done uh, seven of them. I think it's made it to four. Yeah. <laughs> it should. I mean, it really is. It, it's a perfect movie. It's it's uh, it's very similar to Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It's got great, great Halloween atmosphere. It's just a fun, great movie. Yeah, I think it's funny is that movie was produced by NBC, which I think it's the only movie they've ever produced for the theatrical release. And That's right. It, sadly, well, it didn't do very well um, in theaters, but on video it just exploded. Yeah, it really did. I saw that in theaters opening day in 1988, and uh, Cassandra Peterson told me that uh, that was that movie was supposed to be made around 1985. It was kind of on the same production track as Pee-wee Big Adventure, and there was sort of a, a war over which of those two movies Tim Burton would have directed, Huh. which wow. is kind of interesting. Yeah, not that it had a bad uh, director, but it would have had a totally different vibe, I think, if Tim Burton had done it. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It, it's, a, it's a fun movie, though, and I, I highly recommend it. Uh, next, I'm getting a little, bit, uh, a little bit darker here, and we're going to go with a movie called Night of the Demons, which oh, many, yeah. many people probably have seen. Now, this Set one... on Halloween. Yeah. Go ahead, sorry. I was just going to say, set on Halloween, uh, this is a little more extreme. Uh, there's quite a lot of uh, gore and breasts in it, but it is uh, it is a fun, very, very 80s movie. Well, I think it's funny is that this didn't do well in theaters, but it did so well in video, it continued. I think there's three or four of these Night of the Day. Yeah, the second one came out in theaters as well, uh, and it's actually pretty good too, uh, but the first one is fantastic. Yeah, so I'm going with that. Long time, long time it's been. I should uh, revisit that. 
absolutely revisit it because it's great. Did you see the remake? Uh, the next movie, I didn't see the remake because I have an aversion to Eddie Furlong. <laughs> so you don't like Brain Scan? <laughs> no, I can't really handle Eddie Furlong in very small doses, uh, even in even in Pet Cemetery 2. Uh, is the remake any good? Uh, no, I was just curious. I, I tend to run away from horror remakes. Yeah, as well you should. Um, yeah, I am not a huge fan of remakes, and I heard bad things about that one as well. And I loved the original so much, I uh, I was just like, nah, I think I'm good. Yeah, I think the only decent horror remake I've seen in the last decade is probably the, the Fright Night remake. And I haven't seen that either, but I heard that was good. I actually really liked the My Bloody Valentine remake, and the Friday the 13th remake I thought was pretty good as well. Yeah, they're okay, but I also felt like they're almost unnecessary. Like, they didn't do anything new. Oh, yeah. Just, oh, well, 3D, okay. No. Yeah, absolutely unnecessary. Completely unnecessary, but, you know, not not egregious, at least. Uh, the next thing I had was uh, an anthology movie, because I feel like uh, that's sort of a backdoor way to get a, basically a TV series in there, but you get a good bang for your buck, and it's a fairly obscure movie called The Willies. Oh, yeah, that's the one Sean Astin has a, a part in, right? He does. It was made sort of on weekends and on uh, summer break by a lot of people who worked on Growing Pains and Just the Ten of Us. That's and weird. it's a really bizarre movie. Yeah, it is very weird, uh, but it's fun and twisted. The cute boy Donkey Lips is in it. Uh, it's a weird movie. This is like during that era when there was so much horror anthology going on, yet I, hardly any of them were successful. Like Creepshow, I think, is the only one that really made its money back. But you had Tales from the Dark Side of the movie, or two, Cat's Eye. Most of them somehow connected to Stephen King. And then there was uh, Grim Prairie Tales and The Willies yes. were kind of the end of the anthology, um, like that whole genre. Yeah, I think that stuff really transitioned to TV. Like The Willies was kind of the last one before we started getting like Goosebumps and Are You Afraid of the Dark? And it's kind of like a more gross-out version of those kinds of shows. Uh, but it's, it's, it's sort of lost and it's well worth rediscovering for uh, a new generation. Yeah, and I also don't think it's on DVD. Uh, it was from Prism Entertainment, if I remember correctly, and I think almost every single thing in their catalog is lost somewhere in the digital world. Oh, it did come out on DVD at one point, but it's not. It's out of print, is uh, what you're saying? No, I, I don't think it ever made it to digital. That and Grim Prairie Tales, I think, are still stuck on VHS. I do have a non-bootleg release of The Willies that I'm looking at right now on, on DVD. Oh, then I'm a so liar. It may be available. <laughs> it may be available. I, I, I might just be wrong. I might have the only copy. Uh, but I know Grim Prairie Tales never came out. And that movie is, there is some weird stuff in there. Yeah. <laughs> all right. What's the next on your list? Next thing I have on my list is is maybe my one of my favorite horror movies of all time. Again, not set at Halloween, but has an amazing, creepy, weird atmosphere. And it's called Messiah of Evil. I have never heard of this. What is it's from about 1972 or 73. It was written and directed by the couple who actually wrote and directed American Graffiti and Howard the Duck. And <laughs> oh, it, is, it is like a Lovecraftian zombie movie. And it, I can't explain it. There's no other movie I've ever seen like it. And I love it. I watch it several times a year. It has some amazing set pieces. There's a lot of kind of what the hell is going on here. I don't understand what's happening kind of stuff in it in the best possible way. Uh, it, it is really, really great. I cannot recommend that movie enough. That is an absolutely undiscovered, underutilized gem of a horror movie. I always feel like those two got uh, the shaft when it came to Howard the Duck. I, they couldn't have completely been in charge. You know it was George Lucas. And yet, whose career gets destroyed, you know, those two. Um, and I thought they did a decent job with what they were given. Oh, yeah, they got scapegoated. And even even Howard the Duck has a lot of, like, weird 
H.P. Lovecraft influence to it with the Dark Overlords and all that kind of stuff. It's it's interesting watching their sort of horror stuff and seeing where that stuff ended up in their more mainstream work, uh, especially when you know they wrote both. But it is it's nothing like Howard the Duck. But if you like Lovecraft and sort of that weird old gods New England seaside type thing, uh, it's very good. It, it has a similar atmosphere to. Another movie, which I won't quite recommend here because uh, I only have 10 choices and I only have five left, but a movie called Dead and Buried, oh, uh, yeah. which uh, Dan O'Bannon wrote. Yeah, that movie's brutal and really great. I, I don't like certain aspects of that movie when you can tell that someone later went in and added special effects, like really, really terrible gore effects, because if you took that yeah. out, um, it becomes a whole different movie. The atmosphere, the content changes because... You know, they had something I think was more sophisticated and almost darkly comic. But then you throw in all the gore effects yeah. and it feels like it's supposed to be a slasher film, but it's not. Yeah, and they and they went in and shot that stuff later, like the eyeball scene and all that stuff. A rumor is that actually John Carpenter shot that stuff uh, for Avco Embassy. And it, uh, yeah, I, I'm surprised nobody's done like a fan edit cutting out some of that, uh, some of that inserted gore stuff in that movie. Yeah. But that movie's great. I love that movie. All right, so we're down to the last five. All right. Uh, the next one up is one of my all-time favorite horror movies as well, Popcorn. Oh, yes. Uh, 1990, Jill Sholin. It's about an all-night horror movie marathon. It's weirdly shot in Jamaica, but is not set in Jamaica. <laughs> uh, but has a great cast, just a really ahead-of-its-time movie. Super fun, also scary. Uh, has one of the best trailers of all time with Percy Rodriguez doing the voiceover with a great tagline that is, Popcorn, buy a bag go home in a box <laughs> which is fantastic uh really good movie yeah have you my, seen uh, popcorn per, yes i have actually i saw that when it first came out not in theaters because it didn't get it didn't get a really super wide release but i remember reading the review in entertainment weekly i think gave it an a minus and i was like what is this movie this is when i first started like getting into horror movies and i rented yeah. it and i was like me and my sister were just like uh, like awestruck by how great this movie was and I think it's another movie that was not on DVD for a very long time. I think it just now came out. I could be wrong about that, but I know they're working it's on it. It's still not out. Yeah, no, it's it still delayed. not out. They've been working. <sighs> yeah, they've been working on it for years. There's a a, a big um, argument over who actually owns the rights because it was uh... sort of a weird co-production. But it it is a really great movie, and and you can find it out there. But I'd love to see like a pristine version of it. It is. It is completely underrated. It, it's great. Tom Villard, I am fascinated by this actor. Uh, he passed away yeah. very young, but uh, his performance in this is my favorite of everything that he's done. It's so uh, unusual. Yeah, and he's usually a comedic performer. You know, he was in We Got It Made, that terrible sitcom. Uh, he's made. great in One Crazy Summer. Yeah, he's in uh, Surf 2, if you've ever seen that. But no, he made uh, Surf 1. That's a joke that they shouldn't have made because I don't think anybody got that there was no Surf 1. Everybody's just like, oh, I didn't no. see the first one, so why would I watch the second one? And Bill Cosby should have learned his lesson from Surf 2 and not made Leonard Part 6. <laughs> I think he th that joke didn't work for them, and it didn't work for him. I think that's uh, low on his list of things that he shouldn't have done. <laughs> well, I guess. If you want to get all politically correct about it. <laughs> Sorry, wrong uh, show. Yeah, that, that is true. That is true. But, uh, yeah, the, the, the fake sequel is, uh, is a joke that's never funny. Uh, also in this, Kelly Jo Minter, she was like an MVP of the late 80s, early 90s. It just seemed like every, like, uh, kind of like... Summer cool, school. Yeah, you got, uh, she's in the fourth, no, she's in the fifth, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, she's in um, People Under the Stairs. People Under the Stairs. 
I know there's something else, but I mean, for some reason my brain went on vacation for a second there. But she was just one of those faces you saw a lot around this time. I, I don't know what she – does she still act? Do you see her anymore? She does still act. She's around. She doesn't pop up in that much stuff anymore, but she does still act. But, yeah, that four-year period was kind of her, her big her big break. She was in quite a lot of things at that time. It was good in everything. Yeah. She's great in summer school. Uh, so I would Again, say popcorn, and for me, uh, I like to double feature matinee with popcorn. It's like a, the flip side, the darker to the light of – kind of the same yeah. setting yeah i agree i think that's a good that's a good uh double feature those two go very well together i would i would also endorse that double feature <laughs> all right what's next on your list next thing i have up is a movie called terror vision oh uh, we just watched this we we tried <laughs> i have a spinoff of video night called trash cinema where we kind of talk yeah. about like drive-in or uh you know, direct-to-video kind of movies that are just strange and weird and trashy. And Terror Vision is one of those bonkers movies that I it, 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 I can't wrap my head around. <laughs> yeah, it's completely crazy. And it's the perfect movie to watch sort of later at night when you're like a little bit out of it. And you're just kind of like, what did I, what the hell, what's happening? And it's a perfect movie for that. Yeah, But I it's think... fun and weird. Did I just lose you? Nope, I'm still oh, here. Sorry. Um. I think it's part of that whole Garrett Graham thing of that era where almost everything he did was really odd. Like, it really sets itself apart from everything else that is on video. Yeah, I mean, are you specifically referencing Chud 2, Bud the Chud? Yes, and Phantom of the Paradise, and uh, it just seemed like he was around a lot at that time. You always found this stuff on USA Up All Night. Yeah, oh, absolutely, absolutely. He's also in Shopping Mall. Yeah, he pops up in some weird stuff for sure. Next up is probably the scariest movie I've ever seen in my life. It's still the scariest movie I've ever seen. I think it's just starting to get a little bit more respect, but uh, it was totally just under the radar for years, and it's Tourist Trap. I've never seen this. This is something that's always been on my radar, but for some reason I just never picked it up. That cover is like really like, oh, this is good, but I just never watched it. Tourist Trap is a better version of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm -hmm. and I will stand by that to my dying day. It is terrifying and weird, and it's a rated PG, which is extra strange. Uh, it, it's a really great movie, and it's completely underrated. And might be the first, the, not the first, it might be the best movie Charles Band was ever involved with in any capacity. That's a bold statement right there, because he made a lot of... Yeah, Ugh. yeah, yeah. But it's, it's well worth watching, and it, it is still terrifying to me. I saw, without giving anything away, there's, there's some villains in this movie... And I was at a horror convention maybe 15 years ago, and someone had uh, one of the villains from the movie. They had uh, one actually used in the movie. And it I had to leave. It freaked me out that much. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, what is Taurus Trap about? I thought it was more like Funhouse, but I guess maybe I'm wrong. Um, there are sort of aspects of Funhouse to it. It's, it's essentially... I can't give too much away, but it's it's about a little weird kind of roadside wax museum that like a Texas Chainsaw Massacre style group of kids ends up stopping at when their car breaks down and then things kind of go south from there. Let me ask you this real quick. Uh, do you think it's bizarre that I find Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 infinitely better than the first one? No, because I 100% agree with you. I just, the, the comedy mixed in with just the out, outlandish gore. It's like Toby Hooper is poking fun at the gorehounds by saying, yeah, you get this, but you also get that. And something oh, about yeah. it is so entertaining, but at the same time, like, horrifying. Yeah, I mean, that opening sequence with the Ungo Boingo song and the, and the two sort of frat dudes in the car, 
is one of the best sequences Toby Hooper's ever done in anything he's done. Oh. And I, I love that movie. I love that movie. I, I, I watched that. Yeah, I watched that. I'd watch that any day over the original and have seen it many, many, many more times than the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. All right, what is is that the rest of your list? The final thing? Or I got two. More? I got two more. Uh, is it one more or two more? I, I I'm, I'm bad at count. Just go for it. Just go for two more. All right, let's do two more. Uh, going with an old one here. It's a Mario Bava anthology movie called Black Sabbath, and it has three segments in it. Uh, it has Boris Karloff in it as a vampire, and has one of the most terrifying segments I've ever seen in a movie, and it's called The Drop of Water, and the the sort of villain in that segment is horrifying, wow. absolutely horrifying. And it's a good introduction to Mario Bava movies. If you have not seen Mario Bava movies, it's a it's a fun movie, but it's also absolutely terrifying. This is what's embarrassing on my side is that I've seen every single movie by his son, Lamberto Bava, but I've never seen a Mario Bava movie. Not a one? Not even Black Sunday or anything? No, I really don't think I've seen a single one. I feel like maybe he did one where it's like vampires in outer space. I might have. Uh, he did. Is it John Saxon in that one? I think I've seen that one. John Saxon. Yep, John Saxon is in that one. Uh, no, no, you're thinking of um, you're thinking of Queen of Blood that John Saxon is in. Oh. Very similar movie, but Mario Bava made a movie called Planet of the Vampires, which is a huge influence. Some would say was completely ripped off by Alien, oh, okay. and it is really cool. Um, so uh, Black Sabbath is that the first anthology film? Because I feel like that's really, really early on in that style. It is early. It's early 60s, but it's definitely not the first anthology film. There's one much, much earlier, a British movie called Dead of Night that I think is from the 40s that has a very terrifying segment about a, a ventriloquist dummy. And there were a lot more than that before that. They, um, I believe they called them portmanteaus was the name of the style where it'd be an anthology movie. But they had been doing them at least since the 30s. What's more terrifying, clowns or ventriloquist dummies? Ventriloquist dummies, hands down. Yeah, those eyes. just Their head doesn't move, but their eyes just watch. They're smiling the whole time. <laughs> yeah, see, I never found clowns scary. They just seem, like, ridiculous to me. Um, or, like I, like, I can take a clown. I can absolutely take a clown. I will fight a clown any day of the week, <laughs> but... I've, a ventriloquist dummy, even though it's smaller, I like I'm like I can't handle that thing. I don't know what to do. I don't know where its weak spots are. Yeah, it's all wood. There's a Tales from the Hood. There's a segment with a little doll that comes after Corbin Burnson, and I'm just like, what do you do when this thing is like? It's like eating your face, and like you know, it's like do you rip yeah. your arms off? What do you do with this thing? Yeah, Tales from the Hood is actually a pretty underrated movie as well. Uh, I I, uh, I saw that in the theater. I really like Rusty Cundiff stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I also. I've seen. Have you seen the movie Clown House? Uh, that's the first one that Sam Rockwell's in, right? Yes, and it's also Victor Salva's first oh, movie, and he right. is an absolute piece of human garbage. And that movie is a, a love letter to his sickness. And some people swear by it. I cannot recommend it because that guy is such a dirtbag. But uh, there is some sort of creepy stuff in there, but it's nothing to do with the clowns. I didn't even I've seen it, but I didn't even register any of that. But of course, I don't think at the time uh, the general public knew about his uh, conviction. Um, yeah. The only clown movie that really unnerves me is It, and only the first half of It, because you know when he goes up against the kids, it's really disturbing. The second half is just a disaster, in my opinion. Yeah, when it, the the spider doesn't really uh, pull it off. I I think it. It's less scary that it's a clown and more scary that Tim Curry is just really good in that movie. You know what, I'll give you uh, Tim, Tim Curry. Yeah, he is amazing. And, like, between that role and him being Darkness in uh, Legend, 
he he is just so great at villain like that that satan character in legend is maybe the best villain in a movie of just pure evil yeah and he's so seductive and and yet he looks like he's just the true like like the like the idea of what satan or the demon or whatever he could look like uh rob botine did such an amazing job of bringing that across but tim curry's so good under all of that makeup that you were just pulled in like this guy is like dark and creepy but seductive and gives you everything he wants uh you know tim curry doesn't get enough credit for that performance oh yeah he's amazing in that so much better than he is in the worst witch <laughs> I, I barely remember that <laughs> he has a musical number called anything can happen on halloween that is uh a sight to behold <laughs> it is a sight to behold all right so now my final final movie not set at halloween takes place in san francisco and is a little film called neon maniacs oh boy the sci-fi channel regular when sci-fi channel first launched i would find this at two o'clock in the morning on a regular basis uh, pulled in by the special effects not so much the story though in my opinion there's not really a story in this movie it's uh the movie is essentially about the uh village people of monsters who live inside the golden gate bridge and who dissolve in water who terrorized some kids. It's completely nonsensical, but there's an amazing costume, like high school costume dance at the end that the, uh, the climax happens on. And it's a, it's a fun, dumb, bizarre movie. I feel like 50% of eighties teen movies had a high school dance scene somewhere in there. Yeah. And they all had a live band. I never had a high school dance with a live band. Nope. I just had a dude with a, uh, like a DJ table and that was it. Yeah, I don't know who these live bands were. There's a few high school things that, uh, to get slightly off topic, I've never seen in real life. One of them is a cla that class where you have to pretend to be married to somebody and do a budget and all that stuff. Yeah. Two is when you have to ha pretend to have a baby that's either a robot baby, an egg baby, or like a thing of flour. Okay, I've seen and that. Three, they had that happen at our you have Yeah, they did the, oh, the really? bag of flour. Wow, did you have to do it? No, I just saw other people do it. I was like, I'm not taking home ec. I got out of it. I'll take something else. Okay, all right. So you've disproved that one. Uh, we also at my school did not have a prom king or queen. And then I've also never seen live bands at a, at a school dance. Yeah, I don't think we had prom king or queen. Uh, we've had homecoming king and queen. I know that. Um, but no, I've never, I've never even heard of anybody having a live band. And that's something you co yeah. saw constantly. And it was always someone like well-known. You're like, hold on. How did you get this band? How did you afford them? <laughs> Yeah, how, why is Devo playing at your high school prom? Your bar mitzvah from Square Pegs. How yeah. did they get Devo? Yeah. Or um, Save Ferris uh, in 10 Things I Hate About You. How did you afford these people? Oh, yeah, totally. All right, so we are at the end <laughs> of the list. Anything else you want to throw in there right before we go? Uh, there's a couple of uh, TV shows they used to watch. The aforementioned Adventures of Pete and Pete, I would say that my so-called Life Halloween episode is very, very good. There's an episode of New Heart called Take Me to Your Loudon. That's a very good Halloween episode. Kate and Allie has a very good Halloween episode from season three called Halloween 2. And there is an episode of the animated real Ghostbusters called When Halloween Was Forever. That is very, very good. I think my favorite Halloween episode um, is going to be Freaks and uh, that one. That is classic. Yeah, it dives into that loss of youth when you're no longer really allowed to tr treat anymore. Did you ever have that moment yeah. where you're wearing a costume and it slowly dawns on you? Well, guess this is the last time I do this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, because I had a had an early growth spurt, and I was basically the same height I am now at age 12. And 12 is sort of pushing it, but I was definitely, you know, I could get away with still trick-or-treating, but not at that size. I was 
I was given a lot of side eye from the people who are handing me candy, and I was like, I guess I can't do this another year. <laughs> yeah, I had it when I was 13, and clearly I was taller than everybody else with my huge elaborate werewolf costume, and everybody else is just like you simple, you know, you buy them at the store, you know, the little plastic masks and stuff like that, and I just felt something wasn't right, and then on the way home, some uh, idiots like in a truck started yelling me, hey, get your mask off, loser, and I was like, well, that's uh, last year for me. Yeah, yeah. I always it's, a, it's a sad day. It's creepy, though, when you see, like, 18-year-olds come to your door, and they're, like, um, not really in costume. They just have, like, a little bit of fake blood in their face. And they're like, hey, what do you got? Oh, yeah. I have nothing for them. Nothing. And I say that to them. I'm like, if you want to prank my house, be my guest. But I have nothing for you. Have you ever pranked anybody? No. See, I don't like the prank Hell Night aspect of Halloween. I always hated it when kids did it when I was a kid, like the shaving cream and eggs thing. I hated it, and I felt, felt like it was just such a such a bastardization of the holiday. Yeah, I TP'd once, and the minute we were done as we were driving away, I was like, uh, I feel like we should go back and take it all off the trees. He's like, how are we going to climb the tree and get that off? Just get over it. I was like, uh, let's just not do this again, because this feels terrible. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, uh... Yeah, I cannot cannot recommend that. <laughs> All right, so that brings us to the end of this episode. Uh, we have a couple more episodes of The Perfect Halloween, and then, of course, you can check out the ones from the previous two years, and we'll be back next year with a handful more. Thank you, Ken, for being on the show. Check out his podcast if you uh, love television. Uh, I want to talk to some of these. You had Jill Sholin from Popcorn on your show, which was a great episode. I did. Oh, thank you. Yeah, she's fascinating. And uh, you do your annual Halloween recommendation. So if you're a big TV fan, he has you know stuff to suggest every Halloween for you to watch. And your new album's out. Uh, and I told yes, you the vanity, the, the vanity project, <laughs> the Vanity Project Hollywood Land, Volume One, Vanity Project Volume One, Hollywood Land. I will say this: Ken makes is, a Ken is sick right now, and I took a big yeah. sleeping pill. So uh, if I seem kind of out of it, sorry. We're both out of it, and that and that's the fun of it. Yeah, I would recommend that people still have some time so they go buy two, three hundred copies of my album and hand them out to trick or treaters. Yes, excellent idea. Just like, where's the candy? Here, take this as a better treat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You probably have a thousand buttons still left. You can just throw those in there, but don't give the Doctor Dick Insider Tinny uh, Kids. <laughs> oh yeah, no that. Inserto. If people don't know what you're talking about either, yeah, Inserto, that sounds like good advice generally, but a little creepy. But yeah, no, no, no children should be given Doctor Dick Inserto. All right, that's a horrible way to end the episode. <laughs> Still, it really is. It really you, is. Yeah. If you listen to his album, you'll understand the joke and the fact that he had all these promotional buttons. But we're trying to—we're not trying to get disgusting here. Sorry, it went off on a weird tangent there, and I apologize. We're not creepers. Um, <laughs> no, uh, no. But uh, but don't don't eat the good and plenty. That's what I'll say. Yeah, and don't eat anything that's like not wrapped. Like, thanks for what is this again? Yeah, I made this at home. I have no idea what's in this. Uh, <laughs> Have you ever heard of anybody actually getting a razor blade? Yeah, and don't. No, that's never happened in the history of the world. There was one case of a kid being poisoned from candy, and it was from his own parents that did it to him. Wow. There's seriously? never been a case of razor blades and apples. I had no idea. Yeah, I just. You always hear about these, like, uh, urban legends about, oh, these kids got poisoned. Oh, they got razor blades in this. And you've never heard of anybody. The only thing you've ever heard of, that kid ate too much candy. He threw up last night. Yeah, it's never happened ever in the history of the world. And I. I would happily eat unwrapped candy, cookies, anything like that, but I was a weird kid. And the things I didn't like was you'd get pencils and you'd get pennies. I don't want that stuff. That's weird when they hand you a bag of pennies. You're like, uh, uh, thank you, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's just not right. Uh, 
sorry, we're, we're wandering off a little bit here. Um, so check out his Facebook page, TV Guidance Counselor. Check out our page, Video Nights. You can catch all the episodes there. And uh, that's it. Everybody have a good night. Cool. Thanks for having me. No problem. Everybody, welcome to Video Night. It's our perfect Halloween edition. We uh, have a guest on every single week this month where they curate a list of Halloween movies that maybe you have seen, but you haven't seen in a while, you've forgotten about, or stuff you've never even heard of before. And this episode, we have Chad Law on as a guest. How's it going, Chad? Good, man. How are you? I, happy, happy, happy pre-Halloween. Yes, I love Halloween. I, I'd rather have Halloween go for months on end <laughs> instead of having to deal with the Thanksgiving Christmas part. Um, I don't know if you're a huge Halloween right, guy. Like I right. I'm just, it, it's the tops for me. Yeah, no, dude, it, it's my Christmas, you know? It's like, why can't we have uh, Halloween decorations out in stores in uh, July? <laughs> Which is what they do with Christmas stuff. It's like at the minute school ends, all of a sudden, like, ah, forget the back-to-school stuff. Let's go ahead and put Christmas cards out. I know, I know it's 90 degrees out. I don't care. Yep. <laughs> yeah, get your, get your Christmas tree. Get your Christmas tree, you know. That's know. when Shane Black starts writing scripts. He's like, July, Christmas movie. Yeah. I wonder if he'll ever write a Halloween movie. Somehow he'll have it set at Halloween, then end at Christmas. I don't think so. And you know what? Somehow I would I would be like disappointed if he did that. Shane Black is like the one dude that I'm like, where's Christmas? <laughs> if it's not there, you're like, this is fake. This is false. I can't deal with this. <laughs> what is the Shane Black imitation? <laughs> is it black with an E on the end? Because it's a fraud. <laughs> yeah, this is not Shane Black. Where's the... Where's Mel Gibson shooting up a Christmas tree lot? <laughs> Trick or treat, throwing a pumpkin with a, di- a grenade in it or something. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right, so basically what we're doing here is um, just putting together a list of what you think would be the perfect playlist for Halloween for people who maybe have never even experienced horror movies or people who have kind of like walked away from the genre. So um, so if you do walk away from the horror genre, you know, you may want to come back with some choices to watch. Uh, listen to this Halloween, listen to, watch this Halloween, and um, what would make your list of the perfect Halloween movie? Oh, man, that's so tough. I mean, there's there's so many different options. I mean, uh, like right off the top, I you know, we're talking Shane Black. I'm going to go with Shane Black's uh, often uh, writing, directing partner, whatever you want to call it, uh, Fred Decker, and I'm going to go Night of the Creeps. Oh, uh, you know, they also did Monster Squad together, but Night of the Creeps, dude, that's that's classic stuff to me. Um, uh, you know, Session 9 is a scary, scary movie that I think too many people haven't heard of or haven't seen. Yeah, that's one of the um, ones that I uh, grabbed on video just based on an A uh, rating in Entertainment Weekly because it never played where I lived. And I lived in a fairly big city. Fort Wayne, you know, is like 250,000 people. And yeah, for some reason, never even showed up. A rating, grabbed it on mm-hmm. video. I'm like, holy crap, this is the kind of thing video was meant for. Like, you know, you experience it and you share it with your friends. Yeah, we live in the weak and the wounded. It's a it's a fucking great movie, dude. It's great. And Brad Anderson, he's he's kind of kept on that trend of like kind of darker, deeper movies. But I think Session Nine is like is his best. Yeah, I, I think it's his best movie. I mean, a lot of people know him from The Machinist, obviously, and yeah. you know Christian Bale losing all the weight and everything. But Session Nine to me is a much better movie than The Machinist is. 
And uh, back to the Night of the Creeps. That's another one that uh, Columbia Pictures had no faith in, even though it looks like they spent a ton of money on it, uh, at least for 1986. And that was another one, like, later it found its life on video. Right, right, yeah. And it had, uh, I mean, it was Tom Atkins. It was, uh, you know, from, from Halloween uh, Season of the Witch, I guess I should say. Tom Atkins from Season of the Witch. Um yeah, you know, it's uh, Night of the Creeps. It's just one of those weird movies where it's like, I mean, the tagline for the movie was like, the bad news is your dates are here. You know, the good or the good news is your dates are here. The bad news is they're dead. I think yeah, that's what yeah, it is. Yeah, that's right. I think so. And um, this is during that era when a lot of the directors who had grown up on horror movies started putting homages in. Like, you know, you have The Thing, The Blob. And uh, The Fly, you know, those are direct remakes, whereas Night of the Creeps took ideas and concepts that were homages to older films and mixed it in with a new way of making it. And it's, it's, it's surprisingly ignored. I, I expected this thing to be huge. It's, I don't know. Everybody, if you're listening, um, I might edit this out. I don't know. Um, we keep getting cut off for some reason, which is weird because this has never actually happened before. So I think the alien, you know, remember that green stuff that's in the sky in maximum overdrive? I think that's what's going over right now, and that's what's interrupting. That's the- what it is, yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden, you can hear See a little uh, semi with the Joker face. Not the Joker, uh, the green goblin on the front. I'm like, I gotta go. Right, right. Yeah, I'm out. I'm out. That's it. it we're out. During the 80s, Stephen King was massive. I mean, he was the king of horror films. What would you say is probably your favorite Stephen King from this time period? For better or for worse, and I'm not necessarily saying it's... I'm not necessarily saying it's Stephen King's best movie adaptation, but it's my favorite because I remember watching it as a really youngster, and that is uh, Silver Bullet. I love Silver Bullet. Silver Bullet will always be... uh, That's always prime Stephen King to me. Uh, like I said, uh, I'm sure there are better Stephen King adaptations, but it's just such a good movie. I mean, the movie almost really works as like a Stand By Me type drama, except there's a you know pre- preacher werewolf in, in the movie that a wheelchair kid has to destroy with a firework. The one thing that's always disappointed me about that movie is the final werewolf reveal. And you're like, it's a giant bear costume? Did you guys run out of money? What happened here? Yeah, yeah. But, but you know what? I let all that go because they got Gary Busey as the awesome Uncle Red. They've got uh, Corey Haim. You know, this was Corey Haim, like, right before Lost Boys and, you know, Corey Haim and the Corey Feldman, you know, kind of breakout thing. And it's just it's just such a – there's there's something about Silver Bullet that is just such a good movie to me. Well, it's all more around, about family. All across. The werewolf thing is kind of off the side. It's more about family, and that's why when the final sequence happens is why it matters so much, which a lot of horror movies forget. You have to spend time with these characters. These characters have to matter. So when something bad does happen to them, you're not like, all right, I don't really care. You're rooting for the villain. You're, like, devastated. Yeah. No, it's um, it, it's it's like, you know, in the 80s, kids – were the protagonists of a lot of adult movies. And I don't mean adult movies like pornos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, they, they, you know, adult-oriented storytelling be driven by, you know, a 12-year-old or, or a girl or, a little girl or whatever it is. And, and I think when you when those types of movies, they don't really exist anymore. You know what I mean? Like, what was the last, when was the last time you saw, and maybe I'm just forgetting something here. Strange. Well, okay, okay. Strange, Stranger Things. Stranger Things. The reason I think that hits home for a lot of people is because it's the first thing I've seen that feels nostalgic like that, where you do have kids as the protagonist of, of you know, of, of a horror thriller story, you know? Yeah, well, there's that one J.J. Uh, Abrams did, um, Super 8, which was... Focused, Super 8. Yeah, Super like 8. Throwback. Super 8, but... 
But that, you know, yes, and it's it, and I love Super 8. I think it's a great movie. Super 8 felt much more like an Amblin Spielberg E.T. kind of film, whereas Stranger Things feels a little more Stephen King, you know? I'm not saying it doesn't have that Amblin vibe, you know, the Stephen King vibe, but it felt more it felt more Stephen King, more Silver Bullet. <laughs> right, and it's why we could connect to them as, you know, as kids. A lot of these horror movies, if you think about them, if they had children protagonists, it's easier to find yourself, like you're saying, Silver Bullet, Lost Boys, Monster Squad. Around that era, uh, there's a, like a dozen or so movies you could really connect to because they were somewhere around your age instead of being like, that dude's 30 trying to play a high school student. No way. <laughs> the faculty. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the problem with a lot of those teenage movies of the 80s is clearly they were old enough to have their own kids play teenagers in movies. Right, right. Well, and that's, you know, well, yeah, I mean, I look at Silver Bullet. I look at Monster Squad, Lost Boys. I mean, Lost Boys is like, you know, it has the teenage angst and all that stuff going on in it with Jason Patrick's character and Jamie Gertz and that whole thing. But at the same time, you've got Corey Haim as the brother and then you've got the Frog Brothers and, you know, you turned into a blood-sucking vampire. I'm going to tell him, wait till mom finds out. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> you know. Yeah, that was one of those HBO things that I experienced. I'm like, this is what horror movies are? I have to see more. Yeah, well, see me, I like, you know, I dude, I've been watching horror movies since I woke up at the drive. My mom ever watched in the fall and thought I was asleep. So pretty much been watching horror movies since, you know, since I was five. Yeah, it's, uh. It's one of those things where I wasn't really allowed to watch horror movies because I was like an overly sensitive child, so I wouldn't be able to see it till I thought eh, 13, 14, you know, like early 90s is when I really started to like go to the video store and like peruse the horror section. Do you miss doing that, like going through the old VHS tapes? You're like, oh, what's this? Sleepaway Camp. Oh, they're reading the back. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and Sleepaway Camp was one of those movies exactly that I did discover after I'd become a Friday the 13th fan and, you know, got into all that and i discovered sleepaway camp on vhs or you know at the video store and yeah i loved i loved being able to go find movies at the video store and having no idea what they were that's you know as much as look everything changes you know that's just a given but it's like we nine times out of ten no matter the size of the movie you can pretty much find out what it is or what it's about by going online finding the trailer reading review whatever there was none of that so you could go into a movie really blind and i think really affects what someone's opinion is of a movie what they know about it going in like if you've seen you know the trailer for for something you go in with it with an expectation of what it is or a knowledge of what it is already well, that's what but i would go to the video store and rent a movie and have no idea yeah. <laughs> no idea what i was about to watch well now we got so many online reviews and they're kind of putting our brain in this place was like, well, it only got 15% on Rotten Tomatoes. Clearly, it has to be a giant piece of crap. Instead of back in the day, the best you ever got was staying, uh, like, oh, Saturday morning, or, you know, like, 2 o'clock on Saturdays, we would have the Roger and Ebert show, you know, the Ebel, I can't talk, people. Siskel and Ebert show, it's been that long, at the movies. You know, and they would give you an idea of what was out in the theaters and what they thought, but that was it. If I was to listen to all the yeah, movies I liked yeah. as a child from Rotten Tomatoes, I would be like, everything I like, is, it sucks. And apparently I'm a moron for life. It sucks. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't watch anything. Yeah, don't watch anything. Well, but, you know, I, I've, I've pretty much come to the – look, you know, a review is, is an opinion. No different than somebody wanting to vote one way or somebody vote, wanting to vote for a, pres, you know, a president another way. It's just an opinion, one person's opinion. It, you know, neither it – so, so it's like when you look at a review – look, the critics usually like movies – more often than not, the critics will like a movie that an audience doesn't like and vice versa. 
It's like, you know, you look at a movie like Suicide Squad, critics fucking hate it. It makes $300 million. Whether or not everybody likes it or not is another story. But it's like, you know, The Accountant was a movie that I just saw. It was, while we're on, we're getting off the Halloween topic here. I realize that. But it's like, okay. we're talking about critics. This is near and dear to my heart. No. Um, but it's like, you know, I watched The Accountant. I love The Accountant. I thought it was great. And you see the critics are all like pretty much like lukewarm on it or don't like it or harsh to it. And I'm like, did we watch the same? <laughs> like, <laughs> what happened? <laughs> what happened? Because I fucking love this movie, you know? So, yeah, it's weird. But anyway, but yeah, like I look back at, um, you know, like I'll, I'll, you know, there'll be a movie I was really fond of as a, uh, as a child or a youngster or whatever. And I'll, I'll read something on it today and it'll be like, although it was panned by critics when it was released, I'm like, it was? <laughs> when did this happen yeah, because i thought this bombs. was just like a classic from birth yeah, yeah you find out a movie bombs you're like what i saw that movie like 80 times how is this possible how how did i not give the monster squad enough money to become a massive success oh my god do you remember last time we were talking about uh if i had ever written a script i never actually mentioned the very first thing i ever wrote was a sequel to monster squad i was 11 i don't know what i was doing you you did you 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 did mention that yeah yeah you did mention that yeah Oh, that and the uh, fact I was obsessed with Young Guns. I wrote a whole extra trilogy to it. <laughs> well, dude, I, I'd love to read it. I loved Young Guns. Like, oh, we need no. more Young Guns, you know? This is long toss. This is, like, from 25 years ago. But that's the great thing about, like, a lot of these uh, genres. Um, if a person locks on to it, they support it, and sometimes they carry the franchise maybe a little too long. Does it really need to be nine children of the corn? Maybe not. But... You can see, like, the passion in certain franchises. Well, the, you, you, you know, speaking of Children of the Corn, we'll go. let's go into Children of the Corn for a second, okay? I watched Children of the Corn 2 before I'd ever seen Children of the Corn, the original Children of the Corn. So I watched Children of the Corn at the Muncie Mall in Muncie, Indiana, when I was very, very young. I don't even know what year this was. I was probably – maybe I was 10. I, I don't even know. I don't know what year it came out. January 93. Okay. Okay. So I was, I was about 9, 9 ish i think oh uh, yeah 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 give or take anyway um children of the corn 2 i thought was a great film i i love this movie when i saw it i loved it i hadn't and i watched it several times why you know growing up several times and i watched it just recently like this season like probably two or three weeks ago it was on uh rodriguez's channel el rey and i remembered it very fondly so it wasn't like i watched it and didn't remember the movie but I saw it for the complete piece of shit that it actually is. <laughs> and I have no I have no idea how you know what happened other than I just saw it through different eyes, you know? Yeah. Um, and I'm not the first person to say this movie is awful. Like this has been, you know, a panned movie pretty much since the time it came out. But for some reason over the years, I like really, really like this movie. And then I see it and I'm like, Oh my God, I finally see what everybody's talking about. <laughs> this movie's fucking garbage. Uh, and it is. It's, it's a really, really bad. Mm. Have you ever seen that one? The and there's a movie I haven't seen for. Oh, I've seen it. I've seen it multiple times. I always think about, you know, uh, the, the Goonies lady getting her head hit off with a basketball. Um, <laughs> you know, Anne Ramsey. Um, but. But I don't remember the movie. I, that's a new movie that if I watched today, I probably would not like it. I don't – but I wasn't super fond of it ever. So, so like, I'm not sure my opinion would be drastically changed like it was with Children of the Corn 2. Like, Children of the Corn 2, I watched, and as a writer now, I was just like, what the fuck were they thinking? Who fucked this up? The writer, the director, 
where the fuck did this go wrong? <laughs> everywhere. And like seen, literally everywhere. Have you seen the third one though? Urban Harvest. I think I've seen all of them at one point in time or another. Is that the one with Naomi Watts in it or was she in four? She's in four. The third one is so good. It's where they, they adopt them and bring them to the city. And it's it's what the first one should have been. If the franchise had launched with the third one, you were like, oh, this is amazing. This should continue. I actually cannot stand the original. It's it's so Outlander. Like every five seconds, it's Outlander. You're like, got it. Um, could you just kill him and move on, please? Because I'm, I'm tired of this. Well, well, and that, that's the, the second one goes full on like the devil's in the corn or something. And it's like he who walks behind the rose. And, you know, look, I grew up around cornfields and I'm like, man, this is some bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Nobody has ever said that line and, and come off like seriously, except in the very last one. I think it's the last one. Um, Michael Ironside says it. And you're like, OK, finally, seven movies in. Someone said that line and I, I take it seriously. Speaking of Michael Ironside, he was in a horror movie with Corey Haim, who we seem to be talking a lot about all of a sudden. Yeah, we should and have a Corey Haim special. We should. We, we, you know, dude, look, I used, to, I used to buy, like, Teen Beat magazines with the Corey's on the cover, you know, okay. so it's fine. You and I are um, getting along. I've always felt like I should be ashamed of that, but I'm like, no, not really. I mean, because let's just say this. My walls were covered in Alyssa Milano posters. All right, don't judge me. Mine too. Who's the boss? I'm like, look at, dude, come on. It's Alyssa Milano. Embrace of the Vampire made my life. Um, yes. So Watchers, um, that's actually pretty good. I like the Yes, one. that's where I'm going. That's where I'm going. Watchers, yes. Watchers is a movie that I watched a lot as a kid. And I always wanted to like it, but I couldn't ever completely like it. And I still feel the same way. There's something wrong with this movie, in my opinion, of what, you know, look, everything is an opinion, right? But it's like, even as a kid, I was this big Corey Haim fan. I loved The Lost Boys, loved Silver Bullet, loved, you know, you know, even the, the other stuff, drive? you know. L Lucas, I, yeah, man, I got to be honest. I liked License to Drive when I saw it at the theater. Uh, <laughs> I own, um, I own a copy right uh, now in my cabinet. I have that sitting next to a copy of what do I have? It's, uh, uh, it's a, never mind. It's Michael Douglas for a feature film. That wasn't horror at all. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> well, my well, okay. Well, and then and then they're you know they're I think it was one of their last theatrical movies they did together. The two Corys, Dream a Little Dream. That was fucking horrific. Yeah. <laughs> the last of those body swap. There's so many of those body swap movies. Yet they never made a horror body swap. Why? It seems like it just primed for it. Yeah, it does. You know, yeah, it does. It's very weird that they didn't. You know, I think I saw a Tales from the Crypt episode or something that was that though. I think there was like not a movie, but like a. I think I did see like a Tales from the Crypt or something that was you know body swap and you know whatever. Uh, you know, look, if I made a body swap horror movie today, I'd still cast Kurt Cameron. <laughs> well, he's his own horror show. Because that would be truly <laughs> terrifying. You put Kurt Cameron and Scott Bale. Let. Oh my God! He who walks behind the rose, uh, I'm fucking terrified. Um, anyway, I digress. <laughs> you know, um, the the one thing I was thinking is like no one's really tapped in unless I missed it. Where they tap into puberty, like hormones. That is what. Well, except maybe my demon lover. But it seems like whenever they turn to a werewolf or another monster, or they swap into something else, it seems like no one ever plays that angle. Like horniness turns you into a different kind of monster. Well, you, you know, you know what's funny is, did you ever see Monster House? Did you see the the movie Monster House, the, the CGI? One? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I saw Monster House. Uh, it's been a while. I don't. Remember oh, okay. It. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, this is a movie. I mean, they, it's not about. It's about the house. It, I actually think this is a very good movie. This is a 
an animated movie with kids at home, it kind of feels like old school, like kids are trying to solve some supernatural, you know, thing. But but the reason I bring it up is he keeps they keep going, what's wrong with you, puberty? And he's all, you know, I'm going through a lot of puberty. So, I mean, puberty is addressed quite often in Monster House. It's not about that, but it is it is something that they address. And I, do, I think Monster House is a really good also very Paranorman. If you've never seen Paranorman, you should watch Paranorman. Oh, I've seen it was uh, where I lived. I lived in Hillsborough, Oregon, and the lady who lived downstairs from me actually worked for them during the time that they were making Paranorman. And it was really cool seeing some of that stuff. Yeah, no, dude, I think Paranorman... Paranorman works as uh, just overall as a really good movie. It's really good for the Halloween season. It's got zombies. It's got Salem witch trials. It's got talking to dead people. It's got zombies eating brains and old. You know, it's it's a really good movie. Yeah, the animated world um, is starting to really pick up on the darker stuff, the more mature stuff. I, I mean, not that Paranorman is like R rated. But I'm getting tired of it being about talking animals and just uh, G-rated. It, it does need to test its boundaries and go PG, PG-13, maybe R-rated. Yeah, I don't see why not. You know, speaking of another movie, you know, speaking of zombies eating brains and another movie that I really, really liked as a kid that I also really saw recently and didn't, I, I, you know, if, if we're trying to give people movies that they should watch right now, we're doing a terrible job at it because I keep bringing up movies. Uh, <laughs> I keep bringing up movies and I'm like, I used to really like this movie and now I fucking hate it. It's off the rails. But I, I, Let's just go where it goes. Yeah, well, okay, so I, the, the, not Children of the Corn too bad, but Return of the Living Dead 2 was nowhere near the movie that I thought it was when I was young. Oh, like, nowhere near. Like, one, if I try and... The, the, the first one I really liked, man. Yeah, like, man. I really liked... But the, the funny thing is, is, again, I didn't see the first Return of the Living Dead until after I had seen Return of the Living Dead 2. So I had this fondness for Return of the Living Dead 2 that just doesn't hold up now. Whereas now I look at Return of the Living Dead 1, and I'm like, that's really funny. That's, you know, its its point is there. Return of the Living Dead 2 is an okay zombie comedy, but like in, you know, when you have things like Shaun of the Dead and stuff like that in existence, you're like, fucking Return, why would I watch Return of the Living Dead 2? <laughs> well, a lot of stuff back then, you would sometimes, and my co-host thinks this is the craziest thing, is that I would constantly see, oh, I'd see part three before it's all part two and one, or um, I would see the ripoff of a movie before I saw the one that it ripped off. And so he was you like, you want to hear something? Here's here's something crazy. Is we're talking of Halloween. The first Halloween movie I ever saw was Halloween Four. The same thing. I saw Four on USA, yeah. and then I worked my myself backwards. I did that with Evil Dead. I, I watched Part Two first, then the first one, and then coincidentally, I'm watching it like the next night. And I see a trailer for Army of Darkness. I'm like, what the hell are the chances? Right. Well, it's weird because. I mean, I saw Halloween 4, which I loved. And to this day, I will say, I love Halloween 4. I, I'm, not saying it's, I'm not saying it's what the original classic is, but Halloween 4, to me, is without a doubt the second best Halloween movie. I love it. I think it captures, it captures small town fall Halloween perfectly. It's got crazy Donald Pleasance doing all of his Michael shit that he does so well, you know? Um, he's like, you know, in a tow truck yard and Tracy, he's pure evil, blah, 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 blah. And it's just so, to me, that movie like set up perfectly what I didn't, what, what for better or worse, you don't get not, not for worse, but what you don't get from Halloween one. So like when I watched Halloween one, I kind of had more of a knowledge of Myers again, for better or for worse, 
going into Halloween one than most viewers did when they watched Halloween one. Cause you get very little in Halloween one, right? It's very minimalistic. You know, right. it's, uh, you don't get a lot of stuff. You don't get a lot of information on Myers. You don't get a lot of, you don't get a lot, you know, but it's scary and it's very effective. And John Carpenter is one of my favorite filmmakers, well, I think but what, it's like when, what when you watch Halloween like, four and then you watch Halloween one, you're like, Oh, so this is her aunt. <laughs> you know, whereas like when you, most people are watching Halloween four, they're like, oh, that's Jamie Lee Curtis's niece. Oh, I get it. Yeah, I'm seeing it backwards. At you, know? All. you don't know that Michael is his uh, and, and Lori are related at all in the first movie. They don't reveal that till the second movie. In fact, I don't even think they reveal it in the second movie unless you watched it on TV. You might be right. Yeah, I know. I know that Halloween two has multiple cuts. Yeah. I, and, and the thing is, it's Halloween two, I think, is a pretty effective. I think it's a pretty effective sequel. Um but it's it's somehow just not Halloween four, you know, to me, the return of Michael Myers. And I mean, when you look back at it and you see that Michael disappeared for Halloween three, you kind of see what they were doing for Halloween four. It's like Michael Myers is back balls out, you know. Yeah. Um, but Halloween three is a movie that was, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people really frown on it. Right. Because there's no it's you know, it's a Halloween movie without Michael Myers. True. As a Halloween movie in the franchise maybe it's not so great but as a standalone movie it's pretty fucking awesome i'll say it's better than buster rhymes kicking open the door going trick or treat mother you know <laughs> yes 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 so that's part eight right no yes it's, it's, it's uh let's see we got uh six is one with paul rudd seven's when laurie comes back eight yeah it's eight yeah, it's eight. Well, see, and what what I will say is H two O with Kevin Williamson, the sc- what I call the scream version of Halloween. I really like that one. Call me crazy. I really like that one, the Josh Hartnett version. Yeah, I like it. I think okay. So in my mind, it's one, two, three. Now, if they had gone off in an anthology series on television, everybody would have been fine with it. But since you're paying for it, you know, it's it's so close to part two. I think they're only a year apart. I think people were really disappointed. And you're right, part four, the reason it works, um, and a lot of people give him credit for it, is Dwight H. Little took the concept and infused it with action. And that's why, if you look at his filmography, almost everything after that is all action movies, you know, like March for Death and, and Murder at Rapid Fire. Yeah, Rapid Fire, a highly underrated action movie. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I think if you look, look at around 87, 88, most of those guys that were doing the horror movies, the way that they would film, the way that they would edit um, was more faster paced, uh, more around set pieces and action pieces. And a lot of those guys went off to do action movies. Look at Chuck Russell. You know, he did The Mask and Eraser and stuff like that. A lot of these guys moved to that. Rennie Harlan even started with horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street 4. Also, one of my favorite Elm Streets. Crazy enough. Most people want to shoot me for that. Um <laughs> I loved it. I, 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 I have a poster on my wall of a Nightmare on Elm Street 4 Dream Warriors, man. It's a uh, – uh, wait, no, it's not Dream Warriors. Nightmare Master. on Elm Street 4, Freddy's Revenge, right? It, uh, three is Dream Warriors, four is Dream Yes, Master, yeah. five is Dream yeah. Child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's – yeah. So Nightmare on Elm Street 4 I have the poster of, and that was with, uh, you know, uh, most people don't know who this is, but it has Andras Jones. Do you, do you know who Andras Jones is? No, I don't. you know who that is? No. Yeah, he's the he's the Karate Brother in a Nightmare on Elm Street Four. You remember him doing jump kicks to you know I'll give you anything you want, hundred dollar bills. I'll even let you you know they're playing the song and then Freddy comes and kills him. It's fucking awesome. <laughs> and I again, again, again though I saw the the first Elm Street I saw was a Nightmare on Elm Street Three, and I really liked it. But then I saw Four and I loved it. And then I went back. And I watched Elm Street 1, loved it. Saw 2, was like, what the fuck is this? Um, 
which I still think, what the fuck is this? Like, I don't get a Nightmare on Elm Street 2 at all. I think that's like a complete, you know, it, it almost like feels like a paycheck. Well, it feels like an episode of the TV show, Freddy's Nightmares. Yeah, it, it just kind of feels like a like a cash-in that nobody I, – I, I don't know. Like, there's there's to me, there's something wrong with A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and I've always thought that. Like, that's that wasn't, that wasn't something where my opinion changed over time, right? Like, that's something that I thought then, I think now, <laughs> you know. Um, but, I, I mean, I loved, like, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 when I saw it. You know, Alabama Whirly fighting Freddy. It's awesome. Now, do you, were you a Freddy guy or a Jason guy? Because it sounds like you're more of a Freddy. I was more of a Jason until I got older when I started to understand the complexities of the Freddy world. I was definitely more of a Freddy guy. But to be honest with you, I'm more of a Michael guy, and I always have been. That series uh, – well, John Carpenter, I think you and I both, like, everything that John Carpenter was doing during this time period was just amazing. I mean, even Prince of Darkness, probably his least liked film from this era, is – balls out amazing and it gets better i think the older you get well the, the thing i'll say is you know it's it's something similar that i say to like michael mann who i hold in like the highest regard right is even when michael mann or john carpenter fail they fail better than most people succeed <laughs> they are so good like a bad john carpenter movie right like if you can even use the word bad is not bad. <laughs> like you're going to be entertained. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, I saw the, you know, the movie that he did, The Ward with Amber Heard, and that's probably like my least favorite John Carpenter movie. But I still watched it, and I was still entertained, and still like, this is better than mo- anybody else would have made this movie. Yeah, well, he has a very signature style, but at the same time, if you watch his filmography, they change so much. Like a lot of directors repeat themselves. It's like a comfort zone. But you can see every single one of them is wildly different, and I, it's such a shame that he's still never been able to do the Western. True, he's fitted into some of his other movies, the themes, but he's always wanted to do a Western, and the guy's like 70, what, 72? Someone's got to give him give him a Western before he goes out. I, you, you know what's funny is I just watched a, an interview with Robert Rodriguez and, and John Carpenter on El Rey. You know, they do the director's chair. I don't know if you've ever watched that show. No, I haven't. Um, but Rodriguez, Rodriguez interviews. It's a really interesting show. But Rodriguez interviews all these directors. He interviews Michael Mann, Tarantino, of course. You know, John Carpenter, Frank Darabont, all these people. But he interviews John Carpenter, and I get the feeling that John Carpenter is like done. Like he just doesn't seem like. I feel like he wants to smoke cigarettes, drink, play video games, maybe do some music, go on a concert here and there. Well, you know. Uh, but I, I don't think he's like trying to make anything anymore. Which. If if he doesn't want to, more power to him, you know, because the reason you make movies and make or make good movies or try to make good movies is because you really desperately want to do it. And I just get this feeling that from what he says or doesn't say even that he's just kind of like, yeah, I've been there. I've done that. Uh, the best is, you know, in the rear view. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Those major directors of the horror genre or fantasy genre at this time have kind of disappeared. You know, Joe Dante, John Landis, John Carpenter. That's weird. A lot of J's in there. You know, Don Coscarelli, a lot of these guys, either they made a bunch of movies all at once and then slowly faded away, or they're very particular, like, especially Coscarelli, you know, he does a phantasm here and there, but he'll pick something very, like, John dies at the end. Uh, well, he didn't, he didn't, I mean, he wrote the script for the last, uh, the last phantasm, the one that just came out, Phantasm Ravenger, but he yeah. didn't even direct that, you know, um, but, and, you know, I think Fanta- or I mean uh, Don Coscarelli is one of the most interesting filmmakers in the past I, what 30 years which is crazy to say to a lot of people but I think dude Don Coscarelli you just watch his movies and watch his work 
that is a really interesting filmmaker there. Uh, Bubba Hotep, that was one of the last movies I remember being just like, I went into it as a Coscarelli fan, but I was really surprised at how good it was and how much I loved it. Yeah, it, and, feels, it feels like, you know, when Empire Pictures and New World, all those guys, you know, those mini majors during the 80s, it feels like the last remnants of that era, except it's really good. Weird. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, well, well, no, and I, I just think Bubba Hotep was one of those movies that gave Bruce Campbell a lot to play with, and, and, and Ossie Davis, who, you know, passed away shortly after that, but he was so great in that movie, you know, um, it, it's, it's just, yeah, I mean, what, what, what was the movie that Coscarelli did right after that with Paul, well, no, it wasn't right after that, I guess it was a few years after, but with, uh, with Paul Giamatti? Oh, John dies at the end. Yeah, now that one was one where I was like, yeah, you know, I wasn't as crazy about it, but still it's interesting. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's still very, very interesting. Like Coscarelli without question. Like, look, look at the Phantasm movies, dude. First of all, that franchise is way older than I am. They just put out the latest one. And it's such a bizarre movie and a bizarre movie to ever, not bizarre in a bad way. It's just bizarre. And it's like, to, to have a movie this insane back in 79 or whenever it came out, and then to still have it making sequels today, that, that's a monumental achievement. Yeah, like, no reboots, no remakes, no you know reconfigurations or whatever you want to call them now. It's, it's been the whole storyline, like what, for 36 years now? Right, right. I mean, that is just insane. Now, the tall man has recently passed away, Angus Scrim, RIP. Um, so I think that, you know, look, you can't do Phantasm without boy. Uh and you know the tall man back, but but Phantasm. Okay, let me put it like this: Phantasm Two was the first, the, the the only one that was done by a studio, right? And that was where they recast uh, the Mike. I think it's Michael Weatherly. I think that's the actor's name. Michael they recast Baldwin. him with James. Le- What's his name? Michael Baldwin. Michael Michael Baldwin. There you go. And they recast him with James Legros. And that's but Phantasm Two was the first movie that I saw because I saw it at the theater, and then I went back and watched Phantasm One. And then I got Phantasm 1, though. I was like, holy shit, this is an amazing series. Yeah, I, I had seen the second one first. I still remember to this day uh, looking in the newspaper, seeing a poster of Phantasm 2 next to Caddyshack 2. And I'm like, uh, okay, Caddyshack 2, that, I don't recognize anybody on that poster from the original. Phantasm 2, what is this? Means? But the whole time I, anybody that was like a grown-up watching, I was like, oh, you can't read that. I'm going to keep reading Gorazone. <laughs> And then I remember seeing the picture from Phantasm 2 with the ball grinding in the guy's mouth and thinking that was the most horrific thing I'd ever seen in my life. I must see this movie. Well, and what's, what's weird is when you watch it now, it's like this practical effect that, that like borders on cheesy with our, you know, like, you know, look, every, we're all very picky now as, as a, in general, as film goers. We go, oh, that's cheesy. Look at the stop motion and the, you know, whatever. But it's like... Phantasm is such a bizarre. Like, give me a long, you know, give me a one-line sentence of what Phantasm is about right now. Balls in your face. Hmm. <laughs> That's a terrible but, line. Um, I I say it's a dream within a nightmare. Right, but if you're a studio head and you're supposed to make it right, which we unfortunately, as as filmmakers, have to deal with at times, they go, okay, but what does that mean? You know, yeah. and you go, well, and and I think Phantasm is a great series and a great 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 the first two are great for sure i haven't seen the most recent one for the record i haven't seen ravenger um but what is phantasm about there's alternate dimensions 
those little like trolls. What what do you call them? Dwarfs, trolls. Evil what what Jawas? are they called in the movie? Evil Jawas, I think. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. But what actually is? I have no idea what kind of acid trip people were on when they made this movie, and I love it for that. Yeah, it's like, I keep thinking it's a piece of this huge mythological world. Like, this is part 9 through 12 of a 25, you know, movies. You know, it's like I'm just seeing a small chunk of it. Like, I'm supposed to know all the stuff that happened before and happened after. And you're not clued in at all. You're just like, I feel like there's another world we're supposed to be visiting where all this makes sense. But it's not, it's, you're, not you're not bringing it to me. Right, well, but I think that's why it's so effective is because it's almost, it's almost scary and like a fever dream. You don't really know what it's about or what's going on. And this is during an era where things were more, I would say, either straightforward the slasher film, or they would get more of the rubber reality, like with Freddy and Chucky and stuff like that, where it was more about special effects and, and, and comedic one-liners. And you've got Phantasm 2 right there in 1988. It's still, it's the most mainstream, I would say, of the series, but it's still really bizarre. Well, and, and to that, I will add, I'll go into a little bit of Daylight's in mythology or whatever we want to call it. Reggie Bannister, who plays the naturally Reggie in the Phantasm movies, the very first version of Daylight's in, which was the first movie I was trying to make. It's the, the movie we made is very different from the original script. Very, very different, like different character. I mean, it's very different, almost a hundred percent, but Reggie Bannister was the first person I'd reached out to sort of within the industry. And the first person I talked to about being in Daylight's End, the original version of Daylight's End, and I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm talking to Reggie Bannister. This is great. you know. And I was going to make this movie, and he was going to play this like guy who owned this auto parts shop, which isn't in the movie you know, that exists at all. Have you seen Daylight's End yet? <clears throat> Waiting for a video. Oh, I have terrible streaming. <laughs> no, no, no. Oh, I can't. No, I, 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 uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I lost you. I lost you. No. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not kidding. I live in this little corner of the coast of Oregon where you can't stream hardly anything. Uh, the, the, the video the, the video stores are gone. There is one movie theater, and they never show R-rated movies. Um, so I'm going to have to wait until it hits Redbox or uh, just order it off Amazon. October, October 25th, I hear, is the Redbox date, and November 1st is the DVD date. So uh, shameless plug <laughs> right there. <laughs> well, it's been on Sci-Fi Channel in the U.K. Is it playing on Sci-Fi here? It's not. We're not doing the. We're not doing this. Well, I'm not saying it won't ever be on Sci-Fi here, but we're not doing the Sci-Fi thing initially in the states. It was a Sci-Fi premiere in the UK. That was just the deal that we made internationally, um, and that's you know how how it rolled out there before video. But it's also on DVD. It came on DVD October 11th in the UK. So, you know, in the UK, if you were in the UK, if you're in London, it's out. The funny thing is, not a lot of people realize this, and I'm probably because I never tell anybody, but like 25% of our audience in the UK. It's crazy. I have no idea why our show is so popular there. And then it's like, it's USA, UK, Australia, Canada, and then sporadic throughout. A lot of Russians. A lot, Russians seem to like the show. Hey, hey, hey we, we have a Russian in Daylight's In then. Uh, Sony Pazikas. Um, yes. Uh, our, he plays Vlad in Daylight's In. All you Russians, check it out. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's, you originally planned on going into the horror genre. When you started writing screenplays, yes. but then somehow got into the action genre for like a decade, and now you're finally coming back around to your original goal. Yeah, well, it's it's weird because I, I think Daylight's In is very much an action-horror kind of apocalyptic hybrid. It's very much like something that I could see. Look, look, John Carpenter's influences and George Miller's influences, for that matter, are all over it, right? Um, but... 
it's very much like a movie that I would have wanted to do when I was 12. Right. So, uh, yeah, it's long story short. It's, I, you know, I, I came in and horror was really, when I first started in the industry, it was all the ring. It was all the Japanese horror remakes. Everybody was doing the ghost stuff, the ring, the grudge, that kind of stuff. So all the agents and all the managers that I had gotten, you know, I, I'd already done the Project Greenlight thing uh, with with the original Daylight's End script, and I'd gotten a lot of agents and managers off of that, and they were all like going, well, come up with the next great horror spec, and I spent two years trying to do that, you know, and some of them were pretty good, some of them probably looking back are not, um, but it just didn't work. Like, I would get down the line, and I would I would take meetings with Lionsgate and, you know, uh, Warner Brothers and all these places and see Clint Eastwood's office and be like, that's awesome. Clint Eastwood's in there. Uh, but, but it just never worked. It just never worked for me. And then I guess I kind of burnt myself out on attempting, um, attempting to do it, attempting the horror thing. You know, I just kind of played myself out like dude, if I see another ghost or another slasher or another, this, I'm going to hang up the keyboard for, you know, forever yeah. kind of thing. And then, so I went and wrote a crime movie, uh, which Millennium Films, who we made it with, kind of turned it into an action movie in a way. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the movie that we made is much different than the script that was originally. It's like Cliff Notes, you know, whatever. Um, but it's it's very different, you know. It's very actiony, whereas the script was more cr- dark crime drama, twisted, and it wasn't actually written thinking of an audience or anything. It was just me kind of being, you know. I'm doing what I want. I'm going to shoot people in the balls and in the head and wherever, you know, whatever. Um, and then it kind of became an action thing. And then people were like, Oh, Chad Law's the action guy. You know, he does action movies. And I was like, okay, well, and I, and I love action movies. I grew up on, you know, we've talked about it before, Canon films and all these things. And, you know, and it was much better to be pigeonholed somewhere than nowhere. So I, you know, that's how I ended up getting six bullets with Jean-Claude and, and, you know, all these things. But it's like I've always wanted to come back. I, I don't even really want to be pigeonholed. I'm, I'm, I'm very much a genre guy. I mean, look, I love movies like, yeah, look, Jerry Maguire, Garden State, et cetera, et cetera. But that, those are not the type of movies I'm going to write. I'm going to write genre stuff. Um, but it's just like I, Daylight's In was kind of that moment where I was able to bring the action and the horror elements together and make a movie. And I, I hope to do more of that in the future. Like, I mean, right now the director of, uh, the director of daylights and William Kaufman and I are working on a movie, uh, with Scott Atkins, which is kind of very much an action horror hybrid set in gangster time. You know, like it's like the untouchables meets, you know, meets the crow. (laughs) That's cool. That's something I've never seen. You, You rarely ever see horror movies set during, the first half of the 19th century or the 20th century. Whoops. Right. <laughs> right. And it, I mean, it, I, I don't want to say it's a horror film, but it's supernatural. Right. So it definitely has a supernatural element and it's definitely, it, it's, you know, it's look, the, the raid meets the crow meets the untouchables. <laughs> would there ever be a, um, a franchise that you would ever want to like remake or, uh, just have a hand in building its mythology, any horror franchise? any horror franchise um you know it's weird because i used to think that i wanted to do that but now it's like there's so much pressure i'm I'm, look i'll never rule it out i'll never say no because like first of all 
if something's propositioned to you, then you start to go, you start to try and figure it out in a way that you've never tried to figure it out before. So if somebody says, Hey, remake scream, my initial thought is fuck. No, I can't do that as well as they did it. But then somebody's really asking you like, you know, as a job to do it, then I go, okay, can I do that? And if I did, what would I do? Because I want to do it. You know, I, I, you know, for all the obvious reasons, how do I remake scream or how do I remake, you know, I, I don't know, you know, uh, what, whatever it is. Um, I like, I like so I would never rule it out, but it's, it's, hard. Oh, we, we do this a lot. There's a delay. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I feel like franchises that should be either redone or maybe added onto are ones that had potential and it kind of fell apart. The one that I absolutely loved, I don't know if you've ever seen is Warlock. That first one was amazing. And then they dropped the ball immediately. You know what? I have seen Warlock, but I'm, I only saw it once. I wasn't a huge fan, and I'm not overly familiar with it. I probably should revisit it. One that I had, th- one that I had thought about over time, and I, and I haven't thought – you know, it's not like I put a lot of thought into it. But one that I remember liking and thinking there's some shit there is The Prophecy. Definitely. The first two aren't bad, but, you know, they chop up that second one. And you can see there's stuff like, well, wait a minute, you just dropped characters that were here for like five seconds. You know, it's the Miramax cut, the Weinstein's scissor fingers going through there. Um, but that first one is amazing. Gregory Wyden, who doesn't get a lot of respect, but he launched the uh, the Highlander series. He did Backdraft and Prophecy. Right, right. No, well, no. And I think, you know, the Prophecy was a movie that was, there, there's definitely something to that. You know what I mean? Like, like if somebody, I, I mean, I, I think the original is very good, but it's like, if someone said, do you want to remake the prophecy? I would probably say yes. And then I would, you know, delve into that. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff like where, you know, if somebody say, look, if somebody said, do you want to do a sequel to Halloween? I would say, yes, I would want to do that because I would want to play with Michael Myers. Now, do I know what I would do? No, I don't. I know I wouldn't have Buster Rhymes kicking Michael Myers. <laughs> I know that. What about Druids? Uh, but but I but but I, I love I Druids. Uh, you you know what's weird? You know what's weird? At the end of Halloween Four, Silver Boots shows up, right? Yeah. Um. Do, well, is that four or five? Well, well, no, hold it's on a second. Five. Let me think. He, he goes into the prison and comes in, shoots everybody, and then Michael Myers escapes. Actually, you don't see that until the beginning of five, right? But it's the no, no, no. It's the end of five, and then in six you see the prison, but in five you don't see what happens, right? You just see the boots. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But see, the, the, the weird thing about that is the promise of that was great. I remember going, what the fuck are the boots? And then when I saw what the boots were, I was never impressed. <laughs> I was like, this is what it is. This sucks. You know, um, but it's like there, there, would be, there would be fun ways to try to play with, you know – the Halloween franchise. And look, I know Rob Zombie did it. And I, I unlike a lot of people, well, I don't even want to say a lot of people. I think the Rob Zombie's movies have fans. I think Rob Zombie's, I, I didn't, I wasn't a big fan of Halloween two that Rob Zombie did, but I liked Rob Zombie's Halloween as its own thing, not as a Michael Myers Halloween remake per se, but I liked it as its own serial killer movie. <laughs> 
Right. It's, it doesn't even feel like a remake. It feels like a sidestep. If you were to see the same story from a different angle, but since they can't cast those same people at that age, they had to recast it. I just feel like it's a different angle at looking at the same. You remember when on DVDs where you could change the angle and see how the, the work was done? You know, it was a, kind of a rare thing. Yes. Most people probably forgot that. Yeah. Did. But it feels like that. Yeah, no, no, I remember. Yeah. No, well, and, and the thing is, is like I, Rob Zombie is – let's go into Rob Zombie. Rob Zombie is an interesting filmmaker who I feel like no nobody's for better or for worse, depending on your opinion of it. Nobody's doing. I, I didn't see his latest movie, Thirty One, yet, and or thirty thirty one. I think it's thirty one. Yeah. Um, and and I, and I wasn't a big fan of the last movie, the witch movie that he did, uh, Lords of Salem, but. This isn't for better or worse. This is a really interesting horror filmmaker. Like you look at the Devil's Rejects. This is almost like a Tarantino movie, but a horror film with no good guys. And it's like the the idea that somebody could get get away with making this. I, look, I, I'm on the battle lines all the time, right? I know how hard it is to make movies and and hear the notes from people. <laughs> and the idea that somebody can make the Devil's Rejects, which ends in you know serial killers going out in a blaze of bullets to Freebird is insane to me. <laughs> it's like absolutely insane. So like for me, there's like a lot of respect I have for a movie like the devil's rejects, even if I maybe don't love it. Right. Like there's something to that movie. There's an artistry to that movie that is undeniable. Right. He has a voice, which a lot of directors now that are hired for horror films seem to be, okay, who can shoot fast? And, and they always grab like a commercial guy or a music video guy. And it doesn't seem to have their identity stamped on it. Right, right. Which, which a lot of the guys we've been talking about, Coscarelli, Fred Decker, um, you know, uh, Don, uh, who, John Carpenter, all these guys have a stamp. Like they all have, you know, you, you can, I think if you pay attention, no matter how much John Carpenter switches it up, you can tell you're watching the John Carpenter film. Yeah, no one else shoots that 70 millimeter ultra wide with all that atmosphere. You just, I miss the 2.35. It seems like a lot of movies now are shooting differently where they're trying to fill the TV screen instead of give it a full scope. Dude, every, everybody's watching movies on their cell phones, man. Everybody's watching movies. They, I mean, it's, it's kind of, for, and again, I'm not a huge fan of it, but like we are watching movies. I'm, I'm a victim of it. I watch movies on my cell phone. I have Netflix on my phone. I'll be in an airport. I'll be traveling. I'll be in bed. And I'll go, oh, I'll watch something on Netflix on my phone. <laughs> you know, so so people are shooting movies in different ways for different, you know, for different avenues. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer. We are um, almost it, to an it, hour now. Um, did you want to add anything to the list? <laughs> we kind of, we didn't really do a well, did, list, but we've kind of gone uh, around the topic that, you know, of movies you enjoy, what you didn't enjoy. But is there any movies that, especially of late, that you would recommend or be forgotten that you would recommend to look um uh what, what else have i seen recently that you you know you know something i just watched um did you did you see you saw wolf creek obviously right the movies yeah they're, they're australian like survival film yeah so yes. a long time i don't really remember. there's a there, there's a wolf creek tv series that is actually pretty good. Yes, uh, it's on it, – I guess it was a web series in Australia, but here it's on – it's a six-part series, and it's on some kind of channel like I, – I don't know, some obscure channel. Look it up. You'll, you'll find it. 
but it's pretty good, man. Like it's actually like I watched all six of them and was like, this is, this is pretty good stuff, you know. It's weird that a lot of these movies, um, once they've exhausted themselves in theaters, are no longer doing the direct-to-DVD route since DVD's drying up. They're now going to series. You know, we have Scream as a TV series, which I never thought would happen. And, you know, oddly enough, Teen Wolf, the TV series is a lot more serious than the actual movies. But I keep expecting to see Fright Night, the TV show. Well, you know what's weird is, are you familiar with Stakeland? You go, oh my god, I was going to ask you, but I didn't want to like, I, I was like, you had to be a pointless thing to throw in. I just watched the sequel, and both those are amazing, and I would actually like to see those. As- you know what's weird is, I just watched Stakeland 2, and I didn't even know that it existed, that it was ever made. Before, <laughs> like, a, a buddy of mine on Twitter had put, Stakeland premieres tonight, and I was like, Stakeland 2 premieres tonight, and I was like, Stakeland 2 exists, you know? So uh, so anyway, I watched it, dude, and it's like, it's fucking good. Like, I like Nick, you know, the lead. Or, well, the sec- I, guess he, I guess he's kind of the second lead, you know, in the movie or whatever. Um, but it's like, this is a really good movie that I would like to see more of. And the funny thing is, is a couple of people have compared Daylights In to Stakeland, which I consider a compliment, but it was not, I, it was not our intention right? Like, it was never like we were like, let's make Stakeland. I, what I think happened is Stakeland, the, you know, the people who made it are coming off of the same influences that we are. You know what I mean? Like, whether Near Dark, uh, Mad Max, et cetera, et cetera, they're, they're doing a very similar thing and kind of putting these things in a burrito and making a movie. And that's what we're doing. And we kind of end up with, you know, similar stuff. But Stakeland 2 was was really good, dude. And it actually had a lot of similarities to Daylight's In when I was watching it. I was like, holy shit. <laughs> this is this is kind of fucking Daylight's In. <laughs> yeah, that Nick Damanichi, he um, has just come out of nowhere. And everything he touches um, is just amazing. Have you seen We Are What We Are, the cannibal movie? I, lo- I love it. I love that movie. Yeah. I love that movie. In fact, Will, Will Kaufman, the director of Daylight's In, has met Nick. Uh, he met him in Texas, um, and, you know, I guess they broke bread, drank beers, whatever. And uh, my thing has been like, dude, let's let's put Nick in something. <laughs> you know, like, this guy is fucking awesome. We'll see uh, Colton July, which is the director of Stakeland, and, the, you know, Nick is involved, obviously. Colton July is one of my favorite movies of, like, the past ten years. I watched it, and, and... I thought, is this the greatest movie I've ever seen? Like, I, I just was so <laughs> awestruck by how amazing it was. Yeah, dude, I, I literally love Cold in July. I'm like, why the fuck is this movie not everybody's favorite movie right now? It made $30,000. Like, it's like they released it just because they were contractually obligated. Right, and I'm like, did nobody care that Don Johnson was fucking awesome in this movie? Oh my movie? god, yes! <laughs> that was a great role for him. This is the best thing Don Johnson's done ever, and yes, he was in Miami Vice, but Man, this is the is best thing. Too. Have you seen Dead Bang? <laughs> of course i've seen dead bang <laughs> dead bang yes but this is the best thing don johnson has ever done ever like this is like to me jim mickle the director and and these guys deserve to just like they should you know i they should be blowing up and doing in a way when i say people should blow up that just means they should do big studio trash i guess <laughs> But really what I want them to do is more really good movies that I like. And and I think that there's – sadly, I think there's – there's a, you know, blowing up means, oh, I just got the next Marvel movie. 
you know, or I'm doing a Star Wars sequel for better or worse. Like not that doesn't that's not necessarily a negative, but it's like I want to see them do the next Colton July, you know, right. I want to see them take uh, every integral moment that they brought to the previous films. Don't add them to a new franchise. Let them just work without restrictions. It, it seems like these guys with a very particular style and taste and a vision. They're constantly, the minute they get to the big leagues, all of a sudden they find themselves in all these meetings giving all these notes. I'm like, you saw the previous movies, right? That's why you hired them? Let him go. Let, let them let do him, their yeah, thing. Yeah, that's what they did like for John Carpenter and Joe Dante and, and John Landis and all these people. It's a to complete, sadly, it's a completely different business than it was back then. And the problem is, a perfect example is You're Next and um, uh, The Guest, right? Simon Barrett and Adam Wingard great great team of filmmakers then they you know they get Blair Witch and everybody's like disappointed the movie doesn't do well and I didn't see it so I can't even I can't even speak on what the movie is itself or isn't but I love this filmmaking team yeah the guest is amazing I just don't know the the guest is amazing and I love your next you know I think your next is hilarious uh in a a good way in an intentional way not (laughs) like I'm laughing at them I'm laughing with them you know um but it's like, then they do the Blair Witch, and I'm like, and you know, and everybody kind of rains on the parade. And I'm like, well, maybe that's because they're not supposed to be doing the Blair Witch. They're supposed to be doing the guest. They're supposed to be doing, you know, uh, you're next. You know, like, I don't know why everybody tries to cut the balls off of, you know, you look at a, a filmmaker like Tarantino who can basically do whatever he wants, right? It's because he came up in a time when the studio system was much different, and now they just consistently let him do whatever he wants, for better or for worse, and nobody questions it. But it's like we're never going to have another Tarantino or, or somebody like that as long as people keep going, well, let's give them the Avengers 12. And I love the first Avengers. That's not a knock on the Avengers. I love Whedon. Um, but you know what I mean? Like we're, we're – the, the filmmakers are not allowed to do what they probably should be doing. Yeah, it's. I keep expecting someone to grab Ty West. I don't know if you watch his movie, but his have a very. I love Ty. Very low budget, but he has complete control over these movies, and I keep expecting any day now because he did do the second Cabin Fever, but surprisingly, Lionsgate let him do it his way. But every day I keep expecting to see, uh, oh, the uh, Exorcist is getting a remake, and Ty West is the director. Like, no. Well, well, and the and the thing is, is the way the way the system works for you know for for longevity's sake and for you know whatever money's sake, if that has to be a factor, which it usually is, he probably should do something like that. But he has a western with Ethan Hawke coming out tomorrow, actually, called In the Valley of Violence, which it, it's Ethan Hawke and uh, John Travolta, and I can't wait to see it. It's Blumhouse, by the way, we, you know, yeah. so it's a Blumhouse produced spaghetti western, oh, and, and I can't wait to watch it. Like, I can't wait. I think it's, uh, you know, yeah, I can't wait to watch it. Yeah. I think he's an interesting filmmaker. There, There is a way to make stuff that is more studio-friendly, audience-friendly, but without complete compromise. I think that's why Joss Whedon did walk away and why, um, uh, forget the name, how can I forget, directed John Favreau. You know, these guys walk away from these huge yeah. franchises, um, and maybe they'll pick another franchise, or maybe they'll find something that they couldn't get made before the Avengers, before Iron Man. You know, like the way that Favreau did with Chef, which is amazing. 
You know, right. The only way they're gonna it's an amazing him, movie. Yeah, yeah. They gave him Chef makes me really million. hungry, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> they gave him $10 million and let him do what he needed to do. Sometimes you do have to sell out to make the other thing. That's what Scorsese did. Uh, someone told him in the mid-'80s, they're like, you know, you can make money uh, directing movies. And he's like, what? And he's like, you keep making these small movies, so you take very low pay, you know, Try, you know, do a big movie for them, do one for you, you know, that kind of mix. Right. Well, it's weird because, like, Daylight's In is probably no, – not probably. It's my favorite movie I've made personally, right, like personally. Um, and the only reason we were able to make it, which is this action-horror hybrid where nobody, nobody was pulling the strings on us, right, is because we raised the money ourselves. <laughs> like, literally, like, raised the money ourselves, and we're like – we had no overhead. You know, there was nobody calling and saying, you know, where are we? Oh, can you cut this? Because nobody cares about characters or whatever, whatever it is. So for better or for worse, what that movie is, I stand by. You know, like if somebody goes, man, I love that movie. I go, thank you. Me too. And if they go, I hate it. I go, well, I'm sorry. I don't. (laughs) But it's the first time I can actually say that complicit, you know, completely and and live or die, you know, because look, nobody's going to like everything, nobody's going to hate everything. But at least with Daylight's In, I'm behind it completely. Like we made the movie we set out to make intentionally. You know, there was, I mean, we, did we have budget hiccups? Did we have this, that, or the other? Yeah. Did we change things? Yeah. But I, we, I, there's not another version of Daylight's In I want to make. Well, if you think about all the great little movies that popped up during our childhood, a lot of those are the tiny budget movies from fresh young filmmakers who had to like cut corners and get more creative. When sometimes when you have too much money, you're like, "Eh, let's just do all the CGI. Let let them handle it. Well, do it in post." You know, sometimes you like, "We got to figure this out now." Well, well, and, and I've said this before to people. It's like Daylight's in. I think is. I think it's my 11th or 12th movie. It, it, look at how jaded I am. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> I'm looking at it now. One, two, three, four, five, six, I, seven, eight, nine, ten. Well, wait, does it count if it hasn't been released yet? Maybe if I made it before. I can't remember. Okay. Well, Daylight's in the 10th. Okay. Yeah, whatever. And it was – but in a way, when I made it, I felt like it was the first movie I made, which was a very bizarre and, and kind of freeing feeling. You know what I mean? Like it was like – Oh, so this is – it was almost like – it's not like I ever lost the love for making movies. I don't want to sound like I was like completely jaded and like fuck this business and fuck this and fuck that. But like it was sort of like rediscovering something. Like I literally felt like – I literally kind of feel like Daylight's In is my first movie. It's not, but it's the – I had more involvement in it. I had more – It's it's the movie I wanted to make. And again, like it's a sword I fall on. You know, like for better or for worse, it's the movie I wanted to make. Yeah, I, I see it. And there's, a, I guess it's not the same exact thing, but it's like, say you're at a gym and you're with a trainer, and he's giving you all the ideas of what to work out with, and then you get tired of it, you hit a wall, but then you decide to look at your surroundings. What do you have? What are the tools that you have at your hand to create your own workout to reinvigorate you, juice you back up, to get you excited about it again? That's the way I, can, mm-hmm. I guess I can equate it. Yeah, well, yeah, no, it, it, it's it's not a bad analogy. Like it's it's like when I was making Daylight's In, it was hard, and I couldn't tell what we were doing a lot of the time. I was like, wait, this is going to be bad. We don't have enough money for this. <laughs> we can't do this. We can't do that. Um, and 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 I was working, but but on the positive side, I was working with a lot of talented people, 
and they all loved what we were doing. They were all there for the right reasons, not the paychecks because we weren't getting those, <laughs> you know? Um, so it, whereas other movies I've been on, it's like been about the paycheck and it's like, Oh, who cares? Just get them out of the fucking trailer. Uh, and here it was like, you know, everybody was there to do the best movie they could based on what we had. And it was, it was sort of reinvigorating, I guess is what I would say. Like it was very, um, yeah, it was very like, it was kind of like a, like an adrenaline shot. I didn't know that I needed at the time, but when I got it, I was like, Oh fuck, this feels good. Yeah. It's great. Cause you don't want to burn out and just like, I don't want to do this anymore. I'll go, I'll go teach at some school, you know, about writing or, you know, I'll just go do something else. Um, but I've noticed that you kind of moved into the producer line as well. So you're doing the writing and the producer. Well, yeah, well, and that, that is like means to an end. Like that is literally only to try to have more control and try to try to be more proactive and not just have the movie that exists be cliff notes of your script. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, look, when I sit down to write a script, I try to do the best version of it I can for me egotistically as a viewer, right? So I want, I want to do something that I'm going to like and want to sit down and watch. And I'm hoping that if I want to sit down and watch it, other people are going to want to do that too. So I'm trying to hold on to that and maintain that. That's the only reason I don't understand producing. I don't, it's not, it's not a job that I normally, you know, look at in the highest regard because it's, it's not a create, it's not, it's not necessarily creative. It's more business, right? So I come from the creative side. So it conflicts sort of with what, where I come from or where I want to come from, but it allows me to try to hold on to the creative. And that doesn't mean I can completely hold on to it. Um, But I try to, I try to. And with Daylight's In, I, I think I did that in isolation, which I just did, which is coming out in, I think April of next year, which is a totally different kind of movie for for me, it's kind of like a dead calm, romantic action thriller. It's it's another movie that like I tried to maintain the creative on, you know. So we raised the money for it privately. We didn't have, you know, the overhead that a lot of people that, that you have a lot of times. It's not like Sony's breathing down your neck. And I love Sony breathing. Look, it's not like I'm saying I never want to work with Sony. I never want to work with any of these people. But it's just trying to figure out how do you make the best movie you can in the best. I think everybody, if if they could make movies without the overhead and just do it their way, they all would do it. But they, you can't always. Right. So you try Nobody to figure out to how, how you can do that. <laughs> right. So, yeah, whether that's Sony, whether that's Blumhouse, whether that's, you know, no matter who it is, you're always trying to figure out how to do that and how to hold on to that. And and with Daylight's in Daylight's in literally felt like uh, I, I made movies when I was a kid with a video camera, you know, like the super eight kids and like, you know, well, like, the, you know, like in super eight uh, kids making a movie and Daylight's in felt like an expensive version of that. <laughs> like it was like, Oh, we have money. Oh, we have a camera. Oh, Chad, go write a script. Okay. <laughs> oh, we're, we're making this movie. You want to see Zompires? Zompires. You want to get Lance Henderson in the movie? Fuck yeah, I do. Lance Henderson's in the movie. Um, so, it, yeah, it, you know, f- for me, it was very much like I, like I kind of went back to the start, 
if that makes sense. And it brought me back to my horror action roots. Mm. Or it was kind of a culmination or a blending of the two. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, uh, I, I have yet to do that straight horror movie that I that I would do. But but all of my, I've always kind of like like you said, all the guys in the eighties they kind of they kind of shot horror movies like action. I kind of write horror movies like action. Like one of my favorite scripts that I've done is called Abominations, which is a horror script, definitely more so than Daylight's End is, but it's written like an action script. <laughs> so it has the action beats and setup. You know, it, it has. Like- it, 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 Sorry. Yeah, it has, it has, it. Well, yeah, it has what I call like a John Carpenter esque. Aside from Halloween, kind of watch a John Carpenter movie. They kind of have action beats. You know what I mean? Like they kind of have. Um, they, they, they. You can tell this is a filmmaker who isn't is sort of an action filmmaker. You know what I mean? Whether it's uh, well, particularly when he got to the Ghost of Mars, which I like Ghost of Mars. I'm not even ashamed to say it. I was a little disappointed. I remember walking out of it going, um, yeah, I think maybe it's time to wrap it up for take a vacation. <laughs> yes. See, it's, it's weird because like, I mean, I don't hold this in the esteem that I hold like they live or assault on precinct 13 or, you know, escape from LA or any of this stuff. But dude, I think ghost of Mars watch it. When was the last time you saw ghost of Mars? Um, two years ago, I think. Yeah. Okay. Within the glut of movie, within the glut of movies that have come out in the past eight years, watch Ghost of Mars. It is unique. It has its this own is... style. That there's nothing like Ghost of Mars. I love the pairing of Ice Cube and um, uh, Natasha Henstridge. Um, I really and like them together. You, you... Something about the movie just didn't click this last time I watched it, and I. That and vampires, for some reason, they didn't wear well on me, and I don't know why. Maybe I've changed, not the movies have changed. You know, the times have changed. I think something about my uh, approach to those movies. Mind you, I am the same guy who argued that Blade was infinitely worse than vampires. I championed vampires. Everybody's like, are you an idiot? <laughs> you, you, know, you know what's funny is, Ghost of Mars was... Uh, John Carpenter championed for Jason Statham to be the Ice Cube role, and the studio wouldn't go for it. Which is funny. They said Jason Statham's not a star, and you know, <laughs> shortly after that, <laughs> Jason Statham became a star because John Carpenter knows what the fuck he's talking about. And that's not a slam against Ice Cube. I look, I actually, I actually really like Ice Cube in the right thing. I don't like him in fucking Triple X <laughs> or weird. whatever. When it comes you know, to action being... movies, he cannot connect with audiences, but he connects with you know the comedic side. Yeah, like like well, and the, but the funny thing is, is when you watch. Ghost of Mars, tell me it's not kind of a comedy. Oh, there are definitely very, very funny moments. I guess maybe I should revisit it. Um, I know that it's on one of those little budget packs where it's like Ghost of Mars and six other movies for five bucks. Maybe I should just grab it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, watch watch Ghost of Mars. I mean, there, there's a scene in Ghost of Mars that I think is classic. It's totally fucking random and weird, and if I'd written it, it's the scene I remember most from Ghost of Mars. But if I'd written it, I would have cut it, cut it out myself. That's what's weird about it. But yet it's the most memorable scene in the movie to me. And it's like there's this guy who's working with them, this like uh, Hispanic guy. And he gets high on this drug and he's they're like making weapons to go to war or whatever they're going to do. And he like is like cutting something with a machete and he cuts his fucking thumb off. And Ice Cube just starts laughing at him. And he's like, what? And you watch the movie and you go, why is this in the movie? But it's also awesome and fucking hilarious that it's in the movie it shouldn't 
I never would have put this in the movie. For worse, I think. Because then I would have made Ghost of Mars without one memorable scene. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, but this, this, that's like kind of the beauty of John Carpenter is he's so, I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's like, it, it is a fucking hilarious scene. Watch, watch the, I think it's on Netflix uh, instant right now. It's I on think. Crackle a lot. I think. Okay, maybe it's on Crackle. But yeah, dude, Ghost of Mars is, I, I just don't think Ghost, I mean, the one thing I didn't, okay. Uh, Ghost of Mars definitely played an influence even on Daylight's End. And the one thing that we said was, let's not have our alpha be the lead creature from fucking Ghost of Mars. (laughs) (laughs) Good idea. Because he's all like laughing, like, ha ha ha. You know what I mean? Like he's, he's kind of cheesy. You know what I mean? So like, but I still like, you know, look, dude, I love, I love Carpenter. And again, even when Carpenter fails, Carpenter fails magnificently. Like a, a, a Carpenter failure is better to me than most people's successes. I will never understand the hate towards Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I thought both Chevy Chase and John Carpenter really stretched themselves on that film. You you want you want to know something weird? I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. I've never seen it. What? I've never seen it. Oh, I mean, it's obvious. Never seen one, that like, movie. It, this is during the period where John Carpenter was kind of taking movies, you know, because he almost did. Um, the remake of Creature from the Black Lagoon, he was just kind of taking stuff for a big paycheck. So he was a gun for hire. A lot of directors do that from right. time to time. So clearly it's something... Well, like, yeah. Well, well, he did comedy with Big Trouble Little China. Maybe he can handle this. But he's handling much more special effects than he's ever done before. But what's notable about it is that Chevy Chase is not Chevy Chase. He's a totally different side of him, which people re- just really did not let him have. They always want him to be the bumbling wise-ass. Um... It's 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 not a perfect movie by any means, and it's obviously aged because special effects have changed so much. But it's still a very right. noteworthy film that it just got slammed into the wall the second it came out. Yeah, no, I, I should I should watch that movie because I've literally it's like the one John Carpenter movie I've never seen. Yeah. I've never seen it, and but it but it's weird because like when you watch Big Trouble in Little China, for example, is that a horror? It's definitely not a horror film. But it's a supernatural, you know, it's an adventure film, right? Which they kind of made during that period of time. Like, you know, Alan Quartermain, The Lost City of Gold. You know, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <Post-Indio Girls. laughs> whatever. We should call them cliffhanger. Right. <laughs> yeah. But but Big Trouble in Little China is such a bizarre, great movie about a sidekick. It's about a sidekick. It's not about, it's not about, like, literally, and, and Carpenter says this himself, but, like, Jack Burton is, like, the sidekick who can't do anything the protagonist <laughs> is not the protagonist like the protagonist uh is the other guy yeah, jack burton is literally like the sidekick going uh, when jack burton's here and you're like jack burton is capable of nothing he's an idiot <laughs> and somehow somehow they made a movie of this and you're like this is genius like it, there, there's the genius at work of, of making big trouble in little china and yeah, you, you know, like here, you know, you asked me a little bit ago if I would remake or jump into anything. I've I've been involved in a couple of remake scenarios, whatever things that I don't think ever should be remade. <laughs> but what happens usually is when people ask me, "Do you want to do the remake of fill in the blanks?" <laughs> I go, "No, nobody should ever do that." But if you're going to do it, you're going to do it anyway. Let me try it so that I can try and salvage it. 
Yeah. That, that's sort of has, how my brain works. You don't want someone who has no love, no care, uh, or even knowledge of a franchise to handle it. You, you watch some of these directors grab these movies, I'm like, do you, do you even see the previous one? Do you even understand why people connected to it? Obviously not. Right. <laughs> well, okay, here's the um, <laughs> The one thing I want to say real quick is, I don't know if you... We, we lived in the same state. We lived fairly close to each other, but I don't know if you got the same yeah. stations we... Um, did you get Super 55 Fox out of Fort Wayne? I don't think... So. Well, what was... Uh, I, got, I got Fox, but I think it was out of Indy. Yeah. And I don't know if that's the same or if that's different. I don't know. Well, I mean, I, where I grew up... I mean, I look, for, for, for the viewers, I grew up in farmland Indiana, which is a... Really, really small town, probably about an hour and a half away from Fort Wayne, maybe. You know, something like that. So it's probably um, hard to get a station there. You would know it if you if you know the name Happy the Hobo, you know what I'm talking about. You may not. Okay. It's fucking familiar to me. <laughs> okay. So this, Why do I know it? This is one of those, like, UHF-style stations. Uh, Happy the Hobo was an afternoon cartoon host who would do, like, Transformers and G.I. I, I do know it. I do know it. I must have gotten the station. I do know what you're talking about. So maybe you remember. It's 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 weird. It's weird because you're just now bringing up a memory that I didn't remember, but now I'm like, yes, I remember that. <laughs> the station was one of those low budget nothing stations where the guy was just buying these huge packages of low rent, you know, like direct to video. At best, he would have Canon picture. You know, maybe a little bit of Avco Embassy. And we uh, Saturday nights, Friday and Saturday nights were filled with horror movies. And it's funny that era. I know those movies aren't very good. You know, we're talking about like you know, Return of the Living Dead too, Deadly Friend. There's other ones like Mutants, um, stuff like that, which maybe they're not great movies, but they help guide you in the direction you were uh, of what you enjoyed. It cultivated its own list of bizarre, low budget movies that a lot of the other people didn't experience if they watched the main network. Right, right. Well, yeah, no, you know, you know what's weird is I feel like did did they play movies on this? Did he play movies? He um, did constantly. It was because uh, they didn't have. This is before Fox launched. You know, with Twenty One Jump Street and uh, Beans Baxter and Werewolf and stuff like that. Um, this is before that when all they had was reruns. So you'd have like Little House on the Prairie, uh, Small Wonder, Mr. Belvedere, WKRP, and then after that would be movies. Well, of course. This is before, like, the paid commercial. So all Friday night, all Saturday night, and some of Sunday were, like, post-apocalyptic Mad Max movies and, and, and low-budget gore films. And it's just like, I, I can't believe I'm staying up for this. Well, this is crazy. I have school tomorrow. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, no, I, I remember – look, I remember I – want, I want to say that I remember him playing a movie called The Willies. Do you remember a movie called The Willies? That is ridiculous because literally the episode I recorded of The Perfect Halloween before you, The Willies was one of the recommendations by my guest. Okay. I barely remember the, the movie now, but I remember it enough that I remember thinking that this – now that you bring this up, I think this guy played a movie called The Willies that I liked, but I haven't seen since. <laughs> it's, it's unavailable. He says it's on DVD, but I think it was an import. Um, I had a VHS of this. Okay, um, some of the listeners will know I had 10,000 VHS tapes at one time. Took over every square inch of my house. I kept trying to go to video stores and the pawn shops trying to find stuff that had never been on DVD. Eventually, it took over my life and I ended up selling them all on eBay. But I had a copy of the Willies, and here's the weird thing is I never got around to watching it. <laughs> Dude. The Willies. The Willies is a good movie. 
I got. I gotta think. Watch it. Yeah, I got these anthology movies were huge around this time, and I feel like um, this is one of those that I never got to see. This and Grim Prairie Tales never got to see either one of them. But I oh, loved... I remember Grim Prairie Tales. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Because you remember this is when like Monsters and Tales from the Dark Side and uh, Tales from the Crypt had just launched. The whole anthology world was huge. Yeah, well, I, I remember t- Tales from the Dark Side, the movie Christian Slater and the Mummy. Definitely. That was one of the first movies I saw on that channel, too. Um, I was just astounded. Um, William Hickey, when the cat is trying to attack him, that's crazy. Yes. Yeah. No, it's, dude, it's, it's insane. Well, no, it's, it's weird because, like, like, well, like, growing up, or when did you move out of Indiana? Well, or, I don't know what you get in Oregon. Where are you at in Oregon? You're, uh, like, in okay, the city? So I move a lot. I move a crazy amount. It's I, I'm on the run. I'm actually the Incredible Hulk. I committed a crime uh, that I'm being accused of. Um, so I left Indiana in 2000. <laughs> so, so basically, uh, you're always angry. Yeah, yeah. I was always angry. Just, um, so I left in 2003. I lived in Monterey for a few years. Uh, then I moved up to Portland uh, in the city. And then I got back down to Pismo. And then back up uh, to Napa, uh, California, where my sister was living. And now I'm up on the coast of Oregon trying to uh, take care of all of my debt and get back to the city. I want to live back in Portland where it's civilization and not so much camouflage. And <laughs> we're going to go home. Right. So, 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 so you moved out of Indiana in what, 2003? Right. Okay. So, so, so you were used to not getting a lot of movies and like things – that a lot of people get i mean again before the days of pay-per-view and and video on demand and and you know internet and these things you were used to like blockbuster being the only way you saw films you know what i mean well you you went from the video store to blockbuster to you know like you you would hear of movies long before you were able to see them right well, we, we did have quite a few theaters in Fort Wayne. We would see a lot of the low-budget stuff would play at, like, one of the weirdo mall, uh, theaters, like, in the city where, oh, they show uh, trashy movies, and then they would show porn, you know, or something like that. But there's also the drive-in. They had two of those, and you would see, like, the first one would be kind of an A or B-lister, you know, and then the C or D-lister would be second. And I would love the <laughs> C or D-lister. My favorite all-time trilogy is uh, we saw Star Trek Three. Uh, Last Starfighter and Ice Pirates. Nice. Well, you know, you know what's funny is when I saw Nightmare on Elm Street four, I saw it in Fort Wayne. Uh, I specifically remember that because I very rarely went to Fort Wayne, um, and for whatever reason, my, my dad was a baseball collector. He this was a time when baseball cards mattered, and you know whatever. Oh, I remember you could go that. Trade. <laughs> Selling all my comics you, for you, baseball you, cards. Yeah, you you could go trade them, sell them for money, whatever. And there was a baseball card dealer that we were dealing with. In uh, well, I, I wouldn't say we. I just kind of went along for the ride. But uh, that he was dealing with in in Fort Wayne, and we went there, and we went to kind of what I, I'm not really familiar with Fort Wayne, but what I would call it was a shady neighborhood. Oh, there's plenty uh, of those. <laughs> yeah. So so we went to a theater in kind of a shady neighborhood, and it was the night that A Nightmare on Elm Street 4 had come out. And I was really excited because I was a big Freddy fan from A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which I had watched on video with my dad. And I couldn't have been more than seven or eight. And But we went to, you know, after we did the baseball card thing, we went to like a 7.30 show or something of A Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And I remember it was, it was like a big moment for me. 
but anyway, we went to this theater. I could have been a thousand miles away for all I knew. I didn't know if I was in fucking Florida or Fort Wayne, Indiana. But it was it was kind of a shady neighborhood. I mean, even, even the theater was kind of shady. <laughs> like it just felt a little um, grindhousey, a little decrepit, a little. But but what's funny is is the memory I have from going to see it in this theater is phenomenal. Like I, the audience reaction on opening night of this Freddy movie was so spectacular. That like I was, I, I think it still weighs into my opinion of what a Nightmare on Elm Street Four is to this day. Do you remember the theater at all? I'm just curious. I, I'm a little obsessed. No, with I don't know. Damn. No, I have no idea. No idea. It's, I just it, know that it. I remember every it's, single theater I saw a movie in. It's truly bizarre. Mm, mm, mm. No, well, see if it was in Muncie, Indiana, where I grew up. Kind of, there was only three theaters, so I had them memorized. But this theater was like I do. I have no idea. It, I just know that it seemed a little shady. I mean, it was it was shadier than the theaters I was used to going to in Muncie. I think I and it was that. like we we went there, and it was kind. It, for all I know, this theater isn't even there anymore. Oh, no, you know what I mean? Are. It's ridiculous. They're all replaced by strip mall, like you know, twelve screen theaters. Do you miss when you'd go to a movie theater and there'd be oh maybe one, maybe two? You know, that would be it, and you'd get this huge room. No, I feel like I go to the theater and I'm like, this is the size of my living room. Why don't I just wait till this is on video? Well, yeah. Why, why, why don't I just Why don't I just not wait watch Daylight's End until it like comes out on DVD? Yeah, I saw Magnificent Seven. It was supposed to be on the big screen, the big room, and I'm like, there's 25 seats in here. <laughs> right, right. No, well, it's it's funny because I went and watched. Well, okay. First of all, I kind of traveled around with Daylight's End, so I saw it on a lot of. I saw it at Texas Frightmare. I saw it in Portland. I saw, you know what I mean? I, I saw, I saw daylights in a lot of places. Um, but when it actually came out and it's limited uh, theatrical run, you know, it, it was in Texas, LA, New York. I saw it in LA and it was like, I'm watching my movie in a theater in LA. This is awesome. But then I came, I flew to the closest theater it was playing to my mom was in Chicago. So I flew after the weekend, like on Monday or whatever it was, I flew back, you know, to, to Indiana and me and my mom drove up to Chicago wow. and watched it. And it was the, at this a, it was the best fucking theater I've ever been to any, any movie ever. It was like at this AMC in Chicago and it had like reclining leather seats and beer <laughs> and everything you could possibly want to watch a movie. And I was like, holy shit. This just spoiled my whole movie making, you know, like this was the opposite of like any grindhouse or anything. And I'm watching my own movie, too, you know, so so forget all the rest. It's like I'm watching my own movie in the best fucking theater that I've ever been in, in my life. And my mom's like, this is pretty great. And I'm like, Are you kidding me, mom? This is phenomenal. <laughs> like, you know, they're playing the Da Vinci Code trailer before my movie. This is <laughs> is awesome. that the first time you've and, seen and one of your movies in the theater? No. Uh, Drive Hard played in theaters. Um uh, close range played in two screens. I saw close range at a really, really independent kind of grindhousey theater in LA. And I saw drive hard in Chicago also. Um, but, the, but daylight's in was the biggest release I'd had because we played in 20, we played on 28 screens throughout the country. So daylight's in was the biggest. I think drive hard was on five screens throughout the country and close range was on two. 
So I've had three movies technically play theaters before they hit VOD or whatever, but Daylight's in was the biggest. And the funny thing is, is Daylight's in is the smallest, smallest movie I've ever the, made. The budget wise. But budget wise. Yeah. So it's like smallest movie ever made. Got the biggest release. Huh. It's my favorite movie that I made. Why? Yeah. <laughs> well, know. I mean, I think, I think that you're, it's going to happen again. The shadow effect, which you have coming up next year, uh, pretty wide you know uh it's a bigger budget good name cast i think at least it's going to get you know at least the same amount of theaters if not more yeah i mean we we have we have jonathan reese myers can gigante uh you know brit shaw who was in the last uh paranormal activity um we we, we shot that in georgia like this time last year we shot this we had literally at this time last year we were about to wrap that movie <laughs> so um I only know that because social media reminds me of the shit. Um, <laughs> oh, I so I'm that. like, no, I literally, <laughs> yeah, I literally got a thing that was like your memories. Oh, you were doing this last year. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I was shooting a movie last year, but it's like, you know, um, yeah, dude, we're, I, I, like not to sound like a, you know, um, I feel like the best is yet to come. Like, I feel like, I got to keep working towards something and like, you know, as long as we keep busting ass and keep trying to do the best that we can do, I have a good team around me, you know? Um, I, 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 I feel like, I feel like the best is yet to come. There's a, there's a lot of really talented, uh, I don't want to say undiscovered because it's not like they're undiscovered. It's not like, you know, nobody's figured them out, but I feel like outside of the mainstream, you know, William Kaufman, uh, Shane Dex Taylor. Um, a lot of these guys are, these are, in my, in my opinion, they're the Ridley Scott's and the James Cameron's making Piranha too. <laughs> you know, yeah. like they're just, they're just the guys who people don't know of yet. Hopefully they don't get fired off Piranha too. <laughs> mm, mm. Or you get fired off Piranha too, and it's the best thing that ever happened to you. Yeah, yeah, you could say it that way. Yeah, it's probably best that he didn't uh, stay on that because people were episode. Um, is there anything you want to pitch before we go besides Daylight's End coming out on DVD? Uh, we have Isolation coming out uh, next April. Um, we have The Shadow Effect coming out when I don't know. Um, and then yeah, we're getting ready to we're getting ready to make a couple more movies hopefully. So it should be good. But yeah, going back into Halloween, give me give me three movies. I, I'm I'm flipping the script on you. Three movies that you think everybody should watch this season. Uh, late phases. I'm the interviewer now. <laughs> Which ones? Late phases. It's Nick Damanichi uh, as an old. Yeah, it's a werewolf. Movie. It's a werewolf movie, dude. I've seen it. It's great. Yeah, okay, pitch really, on. Really good practical effects. Um, and, and great direction. I actually I'll admit to bailing when he killed the dog because I'm a dog person, and I was like, whoa, hold on. So I paused it and like took a day off. Came back to it. That's that 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 is why Tony Scott cut Drexel shooting a dog in True Romance. Well, I didn't realize that. Um, so that one's a great. Watch one. the watch the watch the watch the deleted scenes. They're on there. Drexel shoots a dog, and he's like, "I couldn't do it." Oh, okay, that's good. Um, I'll have to try that. Yeah, I, I have it somewhere out here. Uh, Final Girls is, in my mind, the best horror movie I have seen since the original wait, wait. Fright Night with Mullen Ackerman. Yes. I adore Dude, why the fuck have I... Why did I fail to mention this? Because this movie is fucking greatness. Like, this movie is greatness. This is a movie that I should be fucking pimping, and I'm not. 
Yeah. Yes, Final Girls, I agree with you 100%. It's the Final first Girls movie I've ever teared up at. Yes. Yeah. No, it's great. They they play the song, you know, you know what I'm saying. I don't yeah, want to ruin yeah. it for anybody who hasn't seen it, but the they play the, the song. Yeah. Yes. They play this yeah, there's this trigger song that plays it at the end and it's yeah, it's phenomenal. And that director, where why is he not doing a movie right now what's wrong with you hollywood yeah that's what i got to say well i mean he did the really great uh, uh the third oh, what is it called um go to white castle uh harold and kumar he did the third harold and kumar the christmas one which is the prize he, of the best of the he did and then he does this which is wildly different still very funny but uh so heartfelt and scary and i guess it was written i'm gonna be I'm terrible with names uh he's jason patrick's half-brother um, you know, he was in Near Dark um, and in Death Warrant. You know, the nerd Adrian Pastar. No, not Adrian Pastar. The nerd, oh, wait. The, uh, uh, Jason Miller? Jeremy Miller? Jeremy Miller, I think. Jason, Jer- Jeremy, yeah, I know. Yeah, the, yeah, that kid is the worst part about Near Dark, but yes. <laughs> but but he, he wrote it, and it was about his relationship with his father, Jason Miller, who was in The Exorcist. And it was his, his way of dealing with his father's fame and the pressure of that uh, growing up. And um, it's a brilliant movie. I hope Holy they- shit! I'm realizing all kinds of stuff. I see. I didn't know any of this. <laughs> I just knew that. Like, I really connected with it and really liked it as a movie. Yeah. Uh, the third movie is kind no. of the same vein. A studio film that was dumped. It was expected to be the huge fall uh, movie from Sony last year called Kitchen Sink. They changed the title to Freaks of Nature. Oh, it's not a dude, dude. <laughs> me and me and you are on such the same level right now. <laughs> but you know, you know, you know that I literally just saw this movie, Freaks of Nature, three days ago. Wow, <laughs> three days ago. It's wild. three days ago. It's I saw this, and and, and and I was like, why did they dump this movie? Yeah. It's ridiculous. They spent all that money. It's because it's there's nothing like it. Horror comedy really is not selling well anymore. They want low-budget ghost movies, or they want a zombie movie that that's the best way you're going to get something because they already have Shaun of the Dead and Warm Bodies to compare it to, so they'll put out a, a zombie comedy. Um, but Freaks of Nature is zombies, werewolves, vampires, and humans, and it's this weird universe. You feel well, like and we don't even we don't even we don't even know it's werewolves until the end. For oh, the record, well, you crap, just did a spoiler. Sorry. Spoiler <laughs> alert! Spoiler! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Anyway, it yeah. feels like an entire season of a Joss Whedon show compressed into a movie. It's really deep. It's it's really yes. layered. It's very funny. But I can kind of see where the studio heads are like, how do we sell this? Because this is a movie that in the 80s would have been a no-brainer. Any studio would have sold the crap out of this movie post-Ghostbusters. Yes, yeah. But in this day and age, they they chickened out, which they shouldn't, just like they did with Final Girls. Same studio. Sony dumped both on like 10 screens, and then after that, just video. Now... Uh, Final Girls Ooh. is finding a Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of life. It's, it's it's showing up at midnight showings now. Freaks of Nature, besides you and me and the filmmakers, I don't know anybody who's ever heard of it. Well, well what what's funny is is I I have a, a a girlfriend a friend who's a girl. I should clarify. Anyway, she she had rented this movie. Uh, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, and she I wanted to see it because look, I like the movie Pride and Prejudice. I think Joe Wright's movie is fucking awesome. You know, whatever. Outside the norm. And I was like, you put zombies in that, it's got to be great. And she was like, no, it's not very good. And I was like, okay, I'm going to watch it anyway. So I fucking buy the DVD for cheap on the Amazon. And 
I try to watch it, and it's fucking off. Did you see Pride and Prejudice no, versus it, Zombies? It, it, or Pride it, and Prejudice and Zombies? After the uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter, or whatever it was called, I was just kind of like, ah, you know, I can just wait. Uh, maybe one day down the road I'll catch well, it. Well, see, 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 here's, here's, here's the thing. I think Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter is okay, but this movie is not okay. <laughs> okay, so I buy it, and I try to watch it, I'm like, this was like, you know, again, like three days ago. And I'm like, I try to watch it. And I'm like, yeah, how could it be bad? Pride and Prejudice, Zombies. And it is, I, I, like, I can't even get through it. And I, so I turn it off and I'm like, what's for free on my Xfinity, uh, you know, cable package? And there's this movie called Freaks of Nature. And I'm like, oh, that's the movie that Jonah Hill was going to do when it was called Kitchen Sink. Yeah. Right. I remembered that Jonah Hill was going to direct it, going to star in it, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, okay, cool. Let me watch five minutes of that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm thinking. And I watch, and I turn it on, and I'm like, dude, this movie's really smart, and it's actually like really good. Like, I think it's like a smart comedy, a smart horror comedy, you know. And I, when it was over, I was like, I can't believe more people don't know of this movie, and they don't. They don't know that Freaks of Nature even exists. And you go on IMDb and it has like a 5.5 or something. And you're like, oh, well, clearly it's not that good. But no, it is really good. <laughs> like to me, Freaks of Nature was like a really good movie. And Final Girls is like a new modern classic. Like I think Final Girls is like I was going to try and come up with movies that I the three that I would give. You just named two of them. <laughs> so now I'm like, I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. So. Yeah, like Freaks of Nature and Final Girls. If you haven't seen these movies, you absolutely should see these movies. And the third it would probably be this movie that I haven't even fucking heard of, but it, it was really good. It was called Daylight Ten. Um, uh, but yeah, it's it's pretty good. <laughs> what just happened? Wait, did you just pitch your own movie? <laughs> Wait, no, dude. I, it's just called Daylight Ten. I don't even know what we're talking about. Well, all right, right. I just saw it. <laughs> I just right. I just saw it. Anyway, yeah. It's amazing. It changes your life. <laughs> We should like that movie to all of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, it will change your life. Like, if you believe uh, in uh, voting one way, you'll vote another after you see it. <laughs> Alright, so I think this is the longest episode we've had in years. We used to do these three-hour epic episodes. Awesome! And we were on the ropes. We were, like, at the end going, and our 30th choice for best spy... Uh, uh, and we'd, like, pass out on the ground, and we'd try to edit it together later. <laughs> so this is epic. Yes, yes. This might be Yes, it's epic. It's epic. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> no, but, dude, dude, free, literally, you just, you just named the two. Freaks in Nature and fucking Final Girls. Those... Those are the best movies in this genre. And both both are in the horror comedy genre. You know what I mean? That's what's weird about it is like they're not horror movies. Like as far as straight horror movies, I don't know that I've seen a straight horror movie, like scary movie that I like recently. It's rough. It's, it seems like it's just the same thing over. It's not made with any love. It seems to be made with, uh, okay, budget to profit ratio. Okay, go. Right. Yeah, I, I do. I, I can't. Yeah, the the only oh you know my, well, you know what my third would have been is Hush, which Mike Flanagan did, which is on Netflix streaming right now. It, and you haven't seen Hush? I have not seen it yet. Rush out to see, rush out to see Hush. Okay. You don't even have to rush out. It's on Netflix. It's a Netflix premiere. <laughs> rush out. So to it was made for. <laughs> rush out, run out. To, yeah, like it's a shame that this movie 
it's a shame. It, it's not a shame that this movie didn't get. We we live in a world where the Netflix premiere is fine, right? But it's a shame that we do that because this movie would have played really well, in my opinion, to the mass audiences. You know, to the like if they could have marketed it and if they could have got behind it, Hush would play phenomenal to an audience. But it's a Netflix original. But Hush is the shit, and Mike Flanagan is one of the best horror directors i I don't even want to i don't even want to put him in that box and say horror director he's he's a fucking great director mike flanagan is a fucking great director when you see hush call me back (laughs) okay (laughs) i will do that then (laughs) all right everybody check us out on facebook under video night for all the perfect halloween episodes and of course our regular episodes check out daylight's end it'll be on video any day now probably as you're listening to us right now november 1st november 1st it's outside your door. It's waiting. Let it in. <laughs> nice. All right. And that is it for us. Thank you very much, Chad, for being a guest again on this show. We'll hopefully have you. Thank you, man. Year. Next movie you have, let me know uh, when it's getting ready to release, and we'll chat again about some other topic. Definitely. And hopefully we won't have so many hiccups. <laughs> if you listen to the show, you might hear a, a pause, a pause, a pause. Hey, no, dude, dude, shit happens. Uh, you know, Indiana, you know, shit happens. <laughs> it is. All right, everybody. Have a good night. Welcome to Video Night. There was an experiment two years ago where I decided to have people on the show and we discussed what would be like their perfect Halloween playlist. I had three guests on, see if I could do shows with some new guests. Uh, usually I do a show with Jacob. And out of those three episodes was the birth of Video Night that I do now with Andrew. So I figured I took last year off because it was really swamp schedule. But this year, going back to the perfect Halloween playlist. And um, so this is the first episode of, I guess, our second season of the perfect Halloween. So this is the official launch of season two it's gonna be a short season everybody calm down don't freak out video night will come back my guest this week is lb how's it going lb hey i'm doing okay how are you all right i'm i'm very excited to get back to doing this basically what the show is is we have a guest come on and they basically curate their list of like around top 10 suggested viewing for halloween doesn't have to be horror movies just somehow connected to halloween or the fall something like that so basically we'll just start off the list with your first selection well my first selection is the 1958 movie The Blob. Every one of you watching this screen, look out because soon, very soon, the most horrifying monster menace ever conceived will be oozing into this theater. Two teenagers see it first, like a falling star from outer space. Boy, that was close. Come on, I want to see if I can find it. An old man finds it, touches it, and this is the shocking result. Then on, there's no stopping the blob as it spreads from town to town. It's indestructible. It's indescribable. Nothing can stop it. This town is in danger. How can it be stopped? Mob hysteria sweeps one city. Before long, the nation and then the world could fall before the blood-curdling threat of the blob. Starring Steve McQueen and a cast of exciting young people. 
The 58 one. I read your list and mm -hmm. I was not sure if it was going to be the 80s one or the 50s one. Is there a particular reason you went with that version? Well, okay. So my deal is I really like old vintage movies and I kind of wanted to keep my list in that vein because when I think of watching a movie on Halloween, I think of the olden days, I guess, when, when networks would show all the old black and white movies on Halloween night. Basically, that's what they had to show. <laughs> anyway, right. that scene in the movie Halloween when uh, the kids are watching the Thing movie, you know, it just reminds me of that. So, like, Halloween, to me, is a time to watch old movies. So, that's why I went with the 1958, The Blob. I, did, I do really love the 1988 version. What I like about the older horror movies, it was before gore, you know, before yeah. the special effects and that kind of stuff took over it was kind of just everything was pg it's just like a harder edge pg and back in the day amc and tnt used to just show older movies like the blob and the thing yeah. from another world and all of a sudden it just switched if you watch amc it is not those are not no, american movie classics not at I'm sure all anything with steven seagal should not be considered <laughs> as part of that category right. chuck norris no right they do that fright fest thing every year but it's just the same stuff yeah it's always a friday the 13th halloween yeah yeah, yeah. Fr you know the, the big franchises but even even some of the older stuff were franchises at one time. You know, you had the Hammer films and the classic Universal monsters, and I think those are widely ignored now. You find them maybe on, like, a specialty cable channel, and that's it. Yeah. You know, as funny as that first one, I thought was so hokey for so long because I had uh -huh. seen the 80s version first. But then as you get older, you start to appreciate where films came from. Right. It is definitely hokey. I think one of the hokiest parts of it is that theme song, and I love the theme song so much. Can't remember it, but I'm sure somebody's <laughs> going to plant it in right about now. Yeah. <laughs> Beware of the blob. It creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch. Be careful of the blob. It's written by Burt Bacharach, so it has this definite old-time fun feel to it. Yeah. It's very light. <laughs> For a back I'm sure it's not going to go da, 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 da. <laughs> Right, right, right. Which, uh, originally the director actually didn't want to use that song at all. He wanted the opening theme to be, like, more menacing and scary and frightening. You know, something like Neil Diamond. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> but they went with that Blob song and it, it's just awesome to me. Like, it totally adds to the campiness of the film. Now, I've never seen the one in the middle, the one with Larry Hagman. I think he even directed it. He but did. The Blob. Have you seen this one? Because I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it, but I think it's hilarious because because the tagline for that film is the film that J.R. shot. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a good one, actually. <laughs> the second selection is another classic film. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I hate to say it. I'm a Don Knotts fan, but I've never seen this one either. What? I've never seen this or The Love God. Oh, no. <laughs> okay, so this is The Ghost in Mr. Chicken. It's spooky. It's eerie. It's The Ghost and Mr. Chicken, starring three-time Emmy Award winner Don Knotts as the world's bravest coward. I have been called brave. Now, let me clarify this. As you see, I'm a lion with girls, a tiger with men, <laughs> and I'm just naturally at home in a haunted house. <laughs> so what's brave? How should I know? I'm chicken. Mr. Chicken to you. In this motion picture, he starts as a roving reporter. Now he's a raving reporter trying to solve a murder mystery in a house of terror. 
and he'll scare you silly. Don Knotts in The Ghost and Mr. Chicken in Technicolor. And you're a chicken if you miss this movie. Which is one of my all-time favorite movies, like Halloween or not. I watched this movie so much as a child. It was the thing that my mom and I bonded over. And the reason why I like it so much is, well, first of all, Don Knotts is freaking amazing in general. Yeah. <laughs> People forget how huge he was. Right. I mean, not only just because of the TV show, the Emmys, but his first like five or six movies at Universal, including this one, mm -hmm. were big hits. Yeah, definitely. He was like the Jim Carrey of his time. <laughs> what I love about it is the satire of a small town. I feel like I am a resident of Rachel, Kansas, where this takes place. I know every single person in this film, it feels like. Every character is someone that I can, you know, like, oh yeah, that, that's the guy that I know from the store in my hometown, and that's the guy who works at the police station. Like, they got every caricature correct. And That's how I feel about Gremlins. Gremlins has that <laughs> same kind of feel. Yeah, but this is definitely a hokier version because you know it's like that 50s and 60s small town it's definitely andy griffith but my favorite part, the part that I relate the most to, there's a scene in the middle where Don Knotts is giving a speech because he's been lauded by the community because he has spent the night in this haunted house, this like in the community. And he wrote a newspaper story about it. So he's this big hero because he's not afraid of anything now. But of course, he's Don Knotts and he's afraid of everything. But <laughs> so he has to give this speech at this Chamber of Commerce picnic and he harkens back to this nervous guy character that he used to do on the Steve Allen show. I'm proud to be here today. Attaboy, Luther! <laughs> uh, <clears throat> when I was asked to be guest speaker at this luncheon, I asked myself this. Who are you, Luther Hagues, to be a guest speaker at this luncheon? I thought about my answer about being guest speaker for a long time. What is a guest speaker? Let me clarify this. I have been called brave. What is brave? Let me clarify this. Of course, we all know that it is short for bravery. That goes without even being said. But it is also a symbol of another thing. It is a symbol of doing one's duty no matter what is scaring him personally. Attaboy, Luther! <laughs> Take your World War II. There were many heroes in World War II. What were your heroes? Who were your heroes? Let me clarify this. Thank you for having me. It's just so hilarious. It's so good. Have you ever seen the other scary movie that he did with Tim Conway, The Private Eyes? Yes, I have. That was a regular watch for me because uh -huh. you always have the major network stations. Uh -huh. You know, back then it was CBS, Fo uh, no, Fox didn't even exist then. It was just ABC, CBS, and NBC. And they always had like those other stations, the independent guys, the UHF stations. And there was one that every single year for Halloween they would show The Private Eyes. And I mm -hmm. know that movie backwards and forwards. Yeah, I started watching it the other night actually. Um, and I was like, oh man, Tim Conway's ridiculous. Yeah, I think they did three movies together, uh -huh. but before that, you know, Don Knotts was like an A-lister, and yeah. uh, I really should, I should watch Ghost and Mr. Chicken. You really should. I mean, there are so many cool things about it. The score is awesome, and it's done by Vic Mizzy, who wrote the Addams Family theme song, and oh, nice. like the Green Acres theme song, you know, the songs that we all know and get in our heads all the time. It's a really cool score, it's like got fuzz guitar and xylophone, and like all this stuff that you wouldn't like normally think of a movie score. Yeah. So it's really cool. So 
So Don Knotts was given this deal by Universal, a five-picture deal, because he was leaving Andy Griffith. And he got to pick the subject of the first film. He decided he wanted to do a haunted house film because there was an episode of The Andy Griffith Show where they have a haunted house. Opie hits a baseball into this window of this house, this old dilapidated house that everyone in Mayberry knows to be haunted. Hmm. And it's a lot of fun. I don't know if you've ever seen that. but No, I've seen quite a few episodes, but I gotta tell yeah. you, they're so similar at times that I they've uh-huh. all melded into one episode. <laughs> okay, so I grew up in East Tennessee, so I know every episode of The Andy Griffith Show like backwards and forwards. It was on like 24 hours a day. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, it was always on. So this movie came out of that episode because they had so much fun making it. It'd be weird if they did that with other episodes, like if Seinfeld went off his own and he made a whole movie about the puffy shirt. Right. (laughs) It's okay. Earlier you mentioned Fantastic Score, which brings us to our next movie. Are we talking about the original Little Shop or the newer Little Shop, the musical? The musical, the 1986 musical. You'll say, yeah! When you see the movie, everybody loves Little Shop of Horrors, rated PG-13. In 1986, musicals were dead as a doornail. I mean, they weren't making anything. And all of a sudden, like, these two expensive movies come out. Of course, Little Shop of Horrors is a legitimate musical. The other one's a western that just happens to have musical moments. But Little Shop is a full-on $25 million Jim Henson shot on those big Pinewood (laughs) Studio stages. Yeah. Yeah, And every single bit of this, in my opinion, works. Yeah, it's amazing. This was a film that my parents rented all the time when I was a kid, too. Constantly on HBO. (laughs) Listen, Howard Uh the Duck. I love it. I love Rick Moranis in it. I love the Audrey 2 puppet. It's freaking amazing. It's still, to this day, I have no idea how well they did it. Have you ever seen a stage version of it? No, I haven't. I'm curious. They had one where I lived, but I didn't go or whatever, because in my mind, I was Uh like, Audrey's going to look terrible. It's never going to look as good and believable. (laughs) The the stage version has a different ending. Yeah, I, I can't remember the original ending, but I feel like they died at the end. Am I wrong? They did. In the stage version, they did, and Frank Oz actually shot that ending, and David Geffen was like, no way, man. <laughs> People won't like this. Yeah, this is a dark movie. This is a really dark yeah. movie for, I think it was PG. I don't even think they did the PG-13 with it and you're sitting there talking like he's hacking people up with an axe you know he (laughs) uh seymour eats people whole (laughs) there's Uh a twisted dentist yeah oh the dentist man oh god that was really disturbing to me as a child (laughs) yeah it took me a long time to actually listen to the lyrics because as a kid Uh you just you just watch it over and over and you don't really take in like the subtext and for some reason song lyrics were completely lost on me but then about i don't know about 10 years ago i listened to it i was like oh my god this is twisted yeah totally steve Uh, martin's portrayal of him is hilarious (laughs) like i don't know what he's doing yeah I don't know either. He's he on do, another is, planet. Is he doing Elvis? Uh, oh. I think so. It's supposed to be like a rockabilly. Like, you, if you watch the old 50s movies, <laughs> like, hey, Dale, yeah. how's it going? Yeah. I'm going to take your daughter out. <laughs> it's like John Travolta doing Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> and then Bill Murray is completely nuts. But yeah. here's the weird thing. The most horrific thing in this whole movie to me isn't the monster. It isn't the hacking the people up. There's a sequence right before Bill Murray comes in where he's showing him pictures of mouths that are all rotted. And <laughs> yeah. they show one where it's a complete disgusting mess. And I could not get that out of my head right. for years. Like, oh, brush my teeth every single <laughs> Do minute. It. Have you ever seen the cartoon version of Little Shop? I remember that it exists. It's terrible. I, Awful. I know that I watched it at some point, but yeah, I, I've pretty much erased that from my memory. Yeah, it's like the cheapest animation possible. Oh. It's as if Roger Corman himself had done the budget. He's <laughs> like, ah, you just need one guy drawing this on a, on watercolors, and, and we'll put a hip-hop soundtrack in, because that makes sense. In hip-hop, the really? Yeah! Audrey rap. All right, it's time for me to bust a rhyme, so sit back. 
and chill for a while. I'm coming at you like Toon style. So get ready for a funny bone overload. Yeah, it's pretty awful. Mm. The next movie I've, I've heard of, but I've never seen, Equinox. Equinox! What happened to Dr. Waterman? Only this man, last to see him alive, knows. Equinox. The invisible barrier between good and evil, between light and the forces of darkness. The supernatural before your very eyes. As four teenage boys and girls fight a devil cult for their sanity. Equinox. A story that defies logic, confounds belief. What is the secret of the thousand-year-old book? What are the unspeakable horrors conjured by the forces of evil? What is the fiendish power of the ring that enslaves and destroys? What is the one symbol that can hold at bay the hosts of hell unleashed on Earth? Equinox begins where Rosemary's baby left off. Okay, so this movie is in the Criterion Collection. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Are we talking? Oh, there's two Equinoxes. Oh. I was on a different plane with you. Oh, there's no. one with Matthew Modine, where he, I think he's a clone or he's a twin, and one of the twins is evil. It's kind of like the dark half. Oh. Uh, so, I am on the wrong path. Oh, no. Start over. Oh, no. <laughs> What is your Equinox then? My Equinox is a student film made in 1967 that got funding by actually the producer of The Blob gave it some money and they put out a theatrical release in 1970. It is not a good movie. It. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No, I mean it is. It's great. It's awesome. But it's a student film, man. And uh, the thing that's like really great about it is stop motion animation is amazing. Like, I love stop motion. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's okay. gone, and stop motion can be either cute and quaint, like, oh, that was cool, or it can be unnerving. If you uh-huh. do stop motion the right way, like in Evil Dead, yeah. that's disturbing. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. The director's name is Dennis Murin. Oh, the special effects guy. Yes. Dennis Murin? Okay. I don't know if I'm saying it right. I don't know. It's okay. I'm sure he's not going to sue. It's like, <laughs> how dare you? And yeah, he's the stop motion guy. He later went on to work on Star Wars and all these other famous things that gave him a very big career. And yeah, I didn't know that he started off like that. That's cool. I should see it now because uh, as a standpoint for like the beginning of special effects, for him, is this movie. Yes, exactly. He says that this movie is obsolete. Oh, which I guess maybe, but he uh, recognizes that it's it's got some merit, but he kind of feels like maybe it shouldn't be watched anymore. No. <laughs> you know, there's a handful of student films that have been funded and turned into legitimate full features. You know, there's mm-hmm. this. There is the Milpitas Monster. If you've been to California, Milpitas is a crappy little town where basically I guess the pollution is so bad uh-huh. that the students at this high school made a movie about pollution and trash becoming a huge monster and destroying the town. And they released that in theaters. There's Dark Star, which the same producer, I want to say Charles Little, I'm probably mm-hmm. wrong. You know, he produced Dark Star into a full feature, and I feel like, oh, and Cannibal the Musical. How can we not talk about Cannibal the <laughs> oh, Musical? Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. <laughs> Wait, you're cutting into his butt. Well, what kind of piece do you want? Well, not butt. So, yeah, you know, student films, yes, they're low budget, but I've seen some stuff out there that's actually worth watching. Uh, it's just rot. That's true. You mentioned Evil Dead a second ago, talking about stop motion. This film yeah. was actually very influential to the evil dead and you can tell if you watch this film like the storyline it's basically the evil dead but just not in a cabin all right i gotta see this is it similar camera work or is it just like that vibe no it's that vibe okay so it's a group of kids and they are investigating something in the woods they're looking for their favorite professor and he goes missing and they come across an old book that is very much like the Necronomicon. Hmm. And they read from it, and a bunch of crap starts happening. So, yeah, it's basically the Evil Dead story. 
Well, I wonder if Sam Raimi was ever sued by Dennis Murin. No, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I'd have to see it in order to see if it's too close. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the creatures are, are definitely different. It's not just like, well, there is like a demon guy, but it's like a more traditional looking demon. It's not just like some possessed person. Yeah, huge horns, pitchfork for doing yeah. his heavy work. Yeah, he's got these like huge wings and he flies around and he like swoops down. Um, there's That's this. Cool. It's all stop motion? Yeah. That is awesome. Yeah, it's, it's actually really cool. You should watch it. Yeah, Criterion doesn't put like complete crap out there they, they pick these movies for a reason which uh the blob i believe is also a criterion yes. selection yes. so these guys they find these films they clean up the prints they give them cool extras so i'm i'm totally gonna check that one out thank you for suggesting yes i think you'll love it now, now the next one i'm not on board with you on this one but there's fans of this movie so transylvania 65000 okay the movie or are we talking about the bugs bunny short we're gonna talk about both okay first the movie <laughs> it began as a routine assignment transylvania where is that i don't know it's over there someplace but beneath the surface transylvania's cute cute of this happy land Ah. Terrible secrets ah. lurk in the shadows. Oh. I'm terribly sorry, we thought you were an animal. He is. They are the creatures of the night. Shut up, you lowlife! The curse of the undead. Tell me what we do. The terror of the full moon. Ah. Oh yeah, I'm going into town. And the monster that science created. Ah. Jeff Goldblum. Ed Begley Jr. Hi, ladies. For a good time, call. Transylvania 6, 5,000. <laughs> it's good, huh? Um, yeah, okay, I kind of hate this movie. I watched it again, and I was like, oh, oh, this is awful. <laughs> was it, so, this is the right kind of awful? Not exactly. I mean, there are good things about it. I really loved the whole beginning sequence with Norman Fell. Mac, this is crap. Crap? I like crap. I love crap. I need crap. Crap is what sells newspapers. Look around you. Crap, crap, crap. Being the editor that sends Jeff Goldblum and Ed Begley to Transylvania. Like, that sequence is really hilarious and, and awesome and, like, worth a watch. The rest of the film, eh. Ed Begley, to me, is, like, the standout. I know a lot of people really love Jeff Goldblum. He's very subtle in this, but, like, Ed Begley Jr. is, like, so bumbling and funny and, like, just sort of innocent about everything. Yeah. So his character actually makes it worthwhile to me. The other thing I like about it is Gina Davis as the vampire, which is totally... Totally a great Halloween costume inspiration. I don't know if you remember. She has this like really low cut. Yeah, it's like a vampire hard thing. <laughs> oh, Vampirella. Which one's the color? Yeah. Vampirella. Vampirella. Uh, this is the reason that I was so mad about the movie. And I haven't seen it in probably 20 years, so I should probably give it another chance. Is I was so mad at the ending, uh-huh. pulling the rug out. I'm not gonna ruin it for everybody, but it's not what you <laughs> think it is. And I was like, come on. Yeah. But as an adult, I might be more okay with it. Well, I liked it as I was growing up, but you know, I even watched it maybe five years ago and was cool with it but i watched it again for this podcast and i'm like why why is this cool <laughs> um you know what i really hate about it and a lot of people this is like their favorite thing about the film is is michael richards in i it. knew i knew that was coming <laughs> oh my god it's just like so excruciating and it, there's a scene where they're at the dinner table and he's just like i don't know just screwing around with stuff and getting in jeff goldblum's face and trying to you know like it's good huh it's funny it, what is it? 
It's funny. You know, like that kind of thing. Yeah, and desperate. It's desperate. Yeah, yeah, it really it. is. And you can see in Jeff Goldblum, you can see his face just go, oh, what is this guy doing? Like, and he's like trying not to break. The movies that bug me like that is when the director just completely has no control. He's just letting the camera roll. He's like, oh, I just trust him. Do whatever he does. You know, Will Ferrell has that curse. When it comes to improv, guys, you're going to have to cut a little bit. You're going to have to mold and push them in the right direction. You can't yeah. just go, I'm going to go take a break. You just let him do what he does. Right. Right, that's true. Did you know that this film was originally supposed to be a TV movie starring Tom Hanks and Peter Scolari? What? Yeah. What would that nice. be like? How'd you find that out? I'm curious. Oh, you know, reading. Oh, that's terrible task. <laughs> I hate reading. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I remember this was supposed to be like a huge hit. They kept pushing it really hard during the summer of 85. It was going to be New World's Ghostbusters of the next year. What? I, yeah, well, you know, everybody was doing horror comedies immediately after Ghostbusters uh -huh. made like a bazillion dollars. And New World Pictures was this tiny little company trying to make their name out there, you know, once Roger Corman sold it off. So they did a bunch of horror comedies. There's this, there's House, Chud, and Vamp. And I say Transylvania 65000 is probably the weakest of the bunch. And yeah, I would they, agree with that. I would say it's probably their, one of their more expensive films, too. Too, and it just didn't open at all. Another quick note, just to tie the last two together, Ed Begley Jr. was actually an assistant cameraman on Equinox. That's cool. Yeah, I heard that in the beginning he didn't really want to be an actor. That he would just kind of do whatever uh, entertained him, and then eventually he just chose acting. Well, hey, you know, family business. Yeah. Oh, so this leads to our next selection, Transylvania 65000, The Bugs Bunny Cartoon. Yes, this one was a merry melody. <laughs> Not the Looney Tunes, but the Merry Melodies. Yeah, it's Merry Melodies died, I think, pretty much after this cartoon. Uh, they kind yes. of erased that line and focused solely on the Looney Tunes. Yeah. And, and, and Warner Brothers did a few of the scary, I guess, shorts. Uh, there's this one. Now, I'm tra is Transylvania 65000 the Jekyll and Hyde one, or is that the one with the witch? No, it's actually the one with the Count. It's, oh, I'm, Count. I'm way off. It says Transylvania Count. right there. <laughs> I didn't know that. Right. <laughs> Duh. Duh. Count Blood Count. Count Blood Count at your service, sir. Yeah, that's a Chuck Jones, I believe. Or yes. It might be a Frizz. No, it was, okay, it was Chuck Jones. Chuck. This was the last short that Chuck Jones directed before he left Warner Brothers and made his own studio. And somehow ended up at MGM doing mm -hmm. Tom and Jerry shorts, yeah. which aren't very good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The first time I remember seeing this was in Daffy Duck's Quackbusters. With... Oh, yeah, Quackbusters. I remember that. Yeah, that was in, I don't know, the late 80s. I want to say 88. Yeah, I think it's the last of those compilation yeah. Bugs Bunny cartoons movies. Uh -huh. it, it was featured in that. It's like cut up a little bit. There's a lead-in to the short where Daffy Duck is reading like the old EC type comics. Cats, this comic's a real page turner. It's flopping over with gripping suspense. Then he like goes to sleep and he has this dream where he's in this lounge and all the classic monsters are there like Frankenstein, Dracula, and you know all those people there and like Mel Torme is singing the song. <laughs> well, I don't know. Mel Torme is a pretty disgusting monster. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but... The Velvet Fog Strikes Again! Right, right. So I, I was always like fascinated by this part. I was like, oh, wow. And then it goes into Transforming to 65,000, and then the rest of the film is like not that interesting to me. But <laughs> no, The Duxorcist is probably the worst yeah. animated short they've ever done. Yeah. This one's your typical Bugs Bunny. Like He takes a wrong turn and ends up in, in Transylvania instead of uh, Pennsylvania. He get lost a lot. Did yeah. you ever notice that? It's like a 50-50 shot. It's like, where's Pismo Beach? And he's like in the desert. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, he's in Albuquerque. It's where he, yeah. where he, <laughs> he has no idea where he's going. For yeah. a, a rabbit that's smarter than everybody else, he has no sense of direction. Yeah, that's true. Oh, well. He's just not paying attention. Uh. Now, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Is this the one where there's a special word that he uses to make Dracula turn into a bat? Yes. He realizes he's not in Pennsylvania. And he goes up and he sees the castle. And he's like, oh, well, this is the ho- there's a hotel here. So I'm going to go in and ask to use the phone. And the Count answers the door. And, you know, he's like completely oblivious to this guy as being a vampire. And he goes to bed. And he's like, oh, I can't sleep. So I'm going to do some light reading. And there's like a book of spells. And he pulls it out. Hey, that's what I need. Something to read. Hmm. Magic words and phrases. From then, he says abracadabra and hocus pocus. And that causes the count to turn into a bat and back. Like, back and forth. So there, there's this fight at the end where they're just screaming magic words at each other and turning into all sorts of weird things. <laughs> I think there's this one scene where he's going to like the refrigerator to get something to, like a warm glass of milk and the vampire's right behind him and he just kind of like la da dee dee da da la da 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 abacadabra la da dee dee da da la da 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 hocus pocus <laughs> yeah, he's singing that. There's a song. Oh, I don't remember what it's called, but it's a Doris Day song, and he's singing the the magic words to the tune of that song. There is a collection, like like you said, Quackbusters cuts up a lot of these cartoons. There is another selection. I want to say it's Bugs Bunny Scarathon. It's on DVD. Ah. It's really cheap, and it has all of their scary ones. It has that one where it's Sylvester and Porky Pig in the house, and the mouse is trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. And it has that dun 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 dun. dun. Ah! <laughs> And, and probably the second selection that you're going to discuss. What was the other uh, animated short? This one's actually A Looney Tunes. And it's called Broomstick Bunny, also done by Chuck Jones. And and widescreen, one of the few oh, widescreen ones. Oh, nice. Mutilated for television. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm really glad that it's widescreen, actually, because it is beautiful. It looks really cool. Like, it's a style, I don't know if you remember, Chuck Jones did this for a little while, where it would be, like, solid colors, and the furniture and the things on the wall and stuff would just look like sketches, or not really sketches, but just, like, kind of stenciled. Like, they weren't... Yeah, they it's kind of abstract. Yeah, they weren't 3D at all. There is... I don't know if you know animation... I don't know if you're obsessed with animation <laughs> like I am. Uh, there, was a, there was a studio in the early 50s called UPA, yes. mostly known for doing... And the Mr. Magoo and the Gerald McBoing uh-huh. they decided to take it and streamline the way animation was done, but more artistic. So that's when they started doing like the minimalistic kind of abstract animation, especially the backgrounds. Yeah. And then Universal Studios, I think, is the only studio that didn't copy it, but everybody else did. You look at some of the Disney's from that time, but Warner Brothers, man, they doubled down, yeah. especially Chuck Jones yeah. loved it. Yeah. And the problem is most of the companies did it because it was cheap, not because it was artistic. <laughs> so you look at some of those companies. Chuck Jones, though, he didn't skimp. He he went full on with everything and all of this. That's why I think he is my favorite yeah. of all of the animators. Awesome. He left Warner Brothers, I said earlier, but he actually got fired from Warner Brothers because he moonlighted for UPA. Wow. Yeah, that violated his contract with Warner Brothers. So they, they let him go. Yeah, and the funny thing is not a lot of people know the shorts that he did after he left Warner Brothers. But like I said, he did the Tom and Jerry's. But uh-huh. then he did independent ones yeah. for MGM. But didn't he do the animation for Phantom Tollbooth and Ricky Tiki Tassi yes. and stuff like that? Yes, he did. That's great stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see everything that he has, not only in the Roadrunner, Wiley 
really coyote cartoons at this time, but these more scary ones, mm -hmm. Jack the Ripper one he did and the, and the witch one, yeah. they're just amazing. And the comedy spot on. Michael Maltese is one of the best writers. This one actually takes place on Halloween and Bugs is trick-or-treating. He's wearing a witch mask, so he... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He goes to the house of the witch. Her name is Witch Hazel. She was voiced by uh, June Foray, who also did Rocky in Rocky and Rolling Who is still alive! Yes, she is. Can you believe it? She's, <laughs> That's amazing. She's incredible. Yeah, so he's trick-or-treating and he, he knocks on the door and right before this, Witch Hazel is talking to her magic mirror. Magic mirror! On the wall, who is the ugliest one of all? By my troth, I will avow, there's none that's uglier than thou. I'm so deathly afraid of getting pretty as I grow older. And then she opens the door and the mirror sees Bugs as this grotesque witch and he's like, oh, maybe that witch, actually. <laughs> I think it's funny, if that was made now, the witch would be like, that's a stereotype, we don't all look like that. Maybe. Oh wait, I do, Crap. Maybe. So of course she invites him in, because she thinks he's a real witch, and she wants to get his ugly secrets. I warn you, dearie, I'm going to worm all of your ugly secrets out of you. Tell me now, who undoes your hair? She's also trying to trick him into drinking this tea that has like a beauty potion, so that she can once again be the ugliest. <laughs> <laughs> it's a crazy concept. Yeah, yeah, it. yeah. So he's like ready to drink the tea, and then he realizes, oh, I can't drink this. I have my mask on. So he takes the mask off, and she's like, a rabbit? Yeah. Couldn't tell, could you? You know, my delicate inner sense of danger warns me that there's something faintly unhealthy in the atmosphere of this cottage. It's like the classic bugs thing of like somebody's going to try to kill him and eat him. So there's a bunch of crazy chaotic running around and she finally catches him and then he uses his doe eyes and she lets him go because it reminds her of her pet tarantula named Paul. <laughs> What's the matter, dearie? You remind me of Paul. <laughs> Paul? My pet tarantula! <laughs> yeah, it ends by she's like really upset, so she's crying and stuff, and Bugs is trying to comfort her. So he gets her the tea, which is actually the beauty potion, and she unknowingly drinks it and then turns into this like knockout redhead. Magic mirror on the wall? Who's the ugliest one of all? Yeah, those shorts are just uh, astounding, and the fact that a lot of generations, you know, after us, well, I guess there's not a lot, we're not that old, we're yeah. back in my day, uh, yeah. no, but I was thinking, like, anybody under 30 really doesn't know the Looney Tunes cartoons anymore, they don't no. really show them anymore, no, you no. have to go find these special expensive collections. Mm -hmm. Or watch some, like, crappy version on YouTube. That... Yeah, kids definitely go out and find, and not, and not just Looney Tunes, all of them, Woody Woodpecker, uh, Tom and Jerry, uh, the old uh, Tex Avery cartoons, yeah. you know, all that stuff's fantastic speaking of like wacky almost cartoon characters your next selection i, I almost feel like and if, if this is the correct version of sleepy hollow uh -huh. the one with johnny depp no no the, no the disney one. Oh, oh, i did not expect that okay the disney short the legend of sleepy hollow hey, come on. Boom, 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 boom. 
rollicking ride through Sleepy Hollow, Walt and Bing bring to laughable, colorful life Washington Irving's exciting legend with that awkward schoolmaster, Ichabod Crane. Ichabod, maybe Crane, maybe Arden, maybe he ain't. Anyway, there's no complaint from Ichabod, Ichabod Crane. Ichabod Crane, daring, reckless, losing his heart to Katrina the cutie, yeah. and his head when pursued by the hair-raising, headless horseman. <laughs> Wow. I feel like I've seen it like in school, but I forgot that it even existed until oh, yeah? you said that. Because in my mind, there was only two versions of Sleepy uh -huh. Hollow. There's a Johnny Depp version, and there's a version with Jeff Goldblum, and I think Ed Begley Jr. as well. Those guys get along well. <laughs> <laughs> but the animated version, yes. uh, tell me more about this one. Okay, this one was produced in 1946, when Disney was not... They were struggling because of post-war... Um, a lot of their animators actually had to go to the war. They didn't have a lot of money. So instead of having the budget to do features, they started producing these little shorts and they would put them together in packages and market them that way. Oh, okay. This one came with the Wind in the Willows story. So the actual package film was called The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Ichabod and Mr. Toad. That might be why it's just harder to find, where they don't push it as much. Because right. it's not a full feature. It's also not one of their shorts that they can you know, right. slap together with like 20 other shorts. This must be one of those like, special order, limited edition. Maybe. Maybe. They featured it in they had a compilation in the late 80s. They called it Disney's Halloween Treat. Which they put out a few of those things, like the collections of all, oh, here here are the Disney villains, and here are the Disney princesses, and you know, all that. Oh, right. I remember those. Yeah. This one, the Halloween Treat, was just like all their, their spooky stuff. So it had Mickey in the Haunted House, and Huey doing Louie trick-or-treating, and, and, you know, all that stuff. All of Black Cauldron, which is truly disturbing. <laughs> I like this one because it was worked on by the nine old men. Yeah. Especially Ward Kimball and Milt Cole. They were lead directors in, in this animation. Do you feel like they're older? The Disney stuff that they did back then was more animated. I mean, there's more fluidity to the uh -huh. animation than anybody else. I, I watch that stuff and I'm like, they study how people move. And I mean, I know they cheat a little bit by rotoscoping. Right. But I feel like they put more time and money into their animation than any else. I mean, Warner Brothers is fantastic. MGM is fine. Yeah. But nothing compares to the Disney. The only problem in my mind is that Disney was never funny. You didn't get jokes. <laughs> That's true. Except Goofy. Goofy's funny. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, they did. They had, I don't know how many there is, but there's a, a list of principles that they came up with about how to capture movement correctly. So, I mean, they did put a lot of effort into it. Probably more so than the other ones, like you said. And that might be why he has so much financial trouble. Spending so. too much time in pre production and i think like you said during world war ii not only did they lose their animators but i think they couldn't ship overseas they mm. couldn't send it to europe and oh that's true you know there was no theaters were probably all blown up or everybody was off doing other things so he couldn't get them sent out to other countries like australia and europe and stuff like that and so it cut probably some of the box office down by maybe a third yeah that's probably true so i don't you say you barely remember this okay so the package film the beginning of it has basil rothbone introducing the mr toad story and then it goes into to the Sleepy Hollow story with Bing Crosby. He's the narrator and he sings songs. Obviously, it's Bing Crosby. You're going to get him to sing songs. Yeah. So <laughs> What if Bing showed up? I'm not singing any songs. <laughs> so it's really neat what they did. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow is actually a pretty creepy story and they made it fun and interesting and 
and they also retain some of that creepiness like the actual art of when Ichabod is riding back from the Halloween party through the forest and those creepy trees with the crooked branches and stuff and it's like all dark and all this ambiance is happening there's owls hooing at him and it's just it's really actually scary and the headless horseman is this huge intense looking almost demonic character and it's kind of I think it's a little intense for children, to be honest. At that time, I mean, yeah. A, you, you got Disney, B, it's a kid's film, and C, it's the 40s. It didn't really do a whole lot that was disturbing and haunting. Right. So it's actually pretty impressive to me that they went that far and were willing to do it. I mean, the image of the horseman on his giant black steed and, like, the red glowing eyes of the horse and him on it, and he's, he doesn't have a head, obviously, but he's holding that jack-o'-lantern that's on fire, and he's about to throw it, and it's just, like, so foreboding. It definitely stays with you. Yeah, I gotta see this one. I mean, eventually I'm gonna yeah. have to review every single piece of animation ever made on Back in Tune, <laughs> right, so I'm gonna get right. around to it at some point. Yeah, it's really cool. You know, every year I actually try to read The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. The Disney version, it's a little more toned down than the actual story. Ichabod Crane is much more superstitious in the story. Like, he's really into witch lore. He carries around a book written by Cotton Mather, who, I don't know if you remember, was instrumental in the Salem Witch Trial like, the, like that whole thing. Yeah. So the character is much more interesting. That plays into his fright in huh. the story. So. so this is probably the closest to being like the book. Whereas, yeah, ha- have you even se- have you seen the '80s version with Jeff Goldblum? No, I have not. It's not that bad. The only problem is they made a casting choice that was so bonkers oh. that takes you out of it every single time. They cast Dick Buckus, worst name ever, what? by the way, with his '80s mustache and his uh, <laughs> Brooklyn accent or whatever. Oh no! Uh, and, and it's just every time he talks, you're just like, no, get off the screen oh. now. You're taking me out of this. It's, <laughs> it's terrible. No, you know, I didn't even know that that was a Thing, so. It's kind of like the gore in the Johnny Depp version. I think it's a fine movie, but every time the gore mm-hmm. comes out, I'm like, nope, you just took me out of it. It's not like a hard R movie. It's not necessary. Yeah. You know, I like Tim Burton's version, except I usually fall asleep in the middle of it. I don't know. The pacing's a little weird. Yeah. I, well, no. he took he took that movie at the last minute when uh, Superman fell apart. So it, it feels like ah. one of those things that was rushed that he didn't get to work his way through it. Uh, I'm off on a tangent again, people. Sorry. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> okay. Back on page. Okay, so the next selection you have is actually a little vague because you just write Elvira. This is Elvira's Haunted Hills. You won't be able to move. You won't be able to scream. You won't be able to take your eyes off of Elvira's Haunted Hills. Allow me to present Elvira. Nice meeting you, too. Elvira. Entertainer extraordinaire. See Elvira stretch herself as an actress in her most challenging role. I just love butterflies ever so much. Richard O'Brien in his most horrifying performance since the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh, why? 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 Snap out of it. Now, what are you going for, an Oscar? A film that is so steamy. Oh, Lord have mercy. So shocking. That's another unfortunate Elzebus family trait, catalepsy. Fear of cats? You'll scream. You'll gasp. You'll die laughing. Damn, hate when that happens. From the masterfully macabre mind of Elvira. Right, like there's something going on in my mind. Elvira's Haunted Hills. 
The village people say this castle is evil. Yeah, who listens to the village people anymore? Really, um, that's that's a good yeah. selection because most people usually go with her first movie, Mr. Yeah, in the, the Dark. Right, exactly. That's kind of why I wanted to talk about this one. I mean, I, I love them both. Obviously, I just I love everything that Cassandra Peterson does. This one came out in 2001, which I didn't remember it being so recent. That was still, you know, over 15 years ago. But And this is the film that she actually funded herself. Like, I know, it's she, crazy. I mean, even, yeah. I think, what, it cost $700,000? It's still a ton of money to come out. I don't care yeah. how. I mean, it's not like she's an A-lister. She's always just been like a cult figure yeah. that has a solid audience that's stuck with her for 30 years. That doesn't mean you've got $600,000 laying around. Yeah. She just decided to make this film for two reasons. First of all, she loves those old Corman movies like the Edgar Allan Poe stories like Pit and the Pendulum and all that stuff. She loves them. Like that is what horror movies are to Cassandra. She says that the movies that come out today like let's just say serial killer movies or the stalker movies or the summer camp movies all that. She's like those aren't real horror movies. That's real life. When I want to go see a horror movie, I want to be swept up in fantasy or like some sort of metaphysical thing. Like she loves the vampires and those types of monsters, which I can really appreciate, especially for Halloween, right? Yeah, that's my preference too. I like being taken into another world. I like the classic monsters. I like rubber reality. Uh, that's not a dirty thing. That's a, <laughs> it's like a nightmare on Elm Street. It's where they mix like fantasy worlds with reality. And I just the thing where it's just a guy in a mask hacking people up, unless he's gonna sprout wings and fly around. Yeah. And start throwing like you know imaginary harpoons. I don't know. I need to have something fantastic about it. And I also don't like insane amount of gore. Right, me neither. Except the thing. For some reason, I love the thing. But that's I think it's just because I'm stunned by the special effects. Yeah, that's true. The other thing is right before they got the idea for this movie, Phil Hartman passed away. Right. And of course, Cassandra was very good friends with Phil Hartman. And after they went to his memorial the next night, her co-writer had a dream where Phil Hartman came to him and said, you need to do a parody of Roger Corman, of Hammer, Horror, like all the like the classic films that you like. Start it now. So he called up Cassandra and he was like, hey, this happened and we need to do it because Phil said so. He directly came to me and said so. So huh. they did. Was it John Paragon? Yes, John Paragon. Okay. And they made this film and it's corny, it's cheesy, it's Elvira. You know, her humor is totally like Valley Girl meets, I don't know, Benny Hill. <laughs> you know, it's just classic Elvira. And it takes place in Transylvania in the old times. It, it is like a perfect parody of Roger Corman films. Like those stuffy British movies. Yeah. I mean, it's more than just it's more than just the Roger Corman because those always had a sense of humor to them. Mm. It takes all the stuffiness of the Amicus and the Hammer yeah. movies yeah, yeah, yeah. and kind of pokes fun at them. Mm -hmm. The reason I like this movie a little bit better than Mistress of the Dark, even though I find Mistress of the Dark funnier, is that Mistress of the Dark is very of that year. Yeah. It's very 1988, whereas Haunted Hills is timeless. Yes. It doesn't date itself. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, when I realized it was 2001, I was like, what? Yeah, you're exactly right. What's cool about this also is that the film is dedicated to Vincent Price because he was in all those old Corman films, the Edgar Allan Poe stories, and he and Cassandra were were really good friends. I mean, they were kind of uh, pushed together a lot. They're both known for being that classic horror character. So she decided to dedicate the film to Vincent Price. It's weird. I have a lot of fondness and nostalgia for some of those 50s and 60s 
60s horror actors, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, Vincent Price. And I do not feel this in any way for any of the 80s horror guys. Like, I, when people say Kane Hodder, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's right, he was Jason, but I don't have any fondness for him. I don't have any fondness for uh, Robert England. Right. But I don't know, it's not about the classiness of their movies and the way they presented themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Somehow, I don't know how it's possible, but mixes in very, very well with Elvira, where if you put Robert England together with Elvira, when they both were in horror, sort of, I guess. Right, yeah, Robert England, Kane Hodder, those guys, they're not quite debonair no so yeah vincent price i swear uh between him and peter cushing they have just like absolutely top-notch style yeah. and the, the greased back hair and just something so much affection for him which uh, you have a podcast yes. devoted to vincent price which i can't wait for you guys to like do like dead heat some of the stuff he did later in life ah. where it was a weird juxtaposition of <laughs> how he was right. with the new 80s style right. like how do they balance out well yeah we might do that i hadn't actually thought of that because we've been focusing on the the older films, so we might end up doing that. Good idea, Michael. Alright, I keep suggesting horrible <laughs> movies to know. I actually kind of like Dead Heat, but it is weird when he pops up and you're like, huh? <laughs> right. Wait, did you just cast him because he's a horror guy? Yeah, probably. Because he didn't seem like he fits in this. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. Yeah. Alright, and to wrap this all up, oh, actually, before we wrap it up, I want to uh, ask you this. Uh -huh. Did you ever actually see Elvira's TV show? Because I've never seen it. Well, I want to say I did. I think that I was too young. Yeah, I feel like in Indiana, they just didn't show that kind of thing. Horror movies were not exactly the easiest thing to get. Uh -huh. And especially like the Midnight Horror Host. I never saw Midnight Horror Host until I moved to California. Right. We had a, like a local one, and I'm like, ah, it's not the same. I had that too, you know, uh, growing up in small town East Tennessee, like there wasn't much around. We didn't have anything cool like that, but it was something that you always knew of, you know, like you knew that Ronnie McDowell in Fright Night was horror host. Like, you understood the character. You know, you understand what Elvira is. You know, you see their, her, like, Bud Light cutouts in the grocery store and you're like, oh yeah, oh, I know her. Yeah. I know her. <laughs> I've never seen those. I remember how many were stolen. Right. <laughs> they would be there one day and someone like, alright, anybody look and grab it, let's go. So, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I want to say that I did see her, but I don't know. I could be lying. You know, it could just be like this thing that's in my head of like, of course I saw her because she was like so everywhere all the time, but I don't know. Yeah, I remember when the movie poster came out and I was like, I, I don't know who this is. Is this, <laughs> is this a star? Is this somebody? I don't... <laughs> and another New World, I think it was the last of the New World horror comedies, and again, it didn't make a bunch of money, so it didn't really save the studio, but NBC was smart enough to pay for half the movie, and then like a year after came out they had tv rights to it and then i guess it got huge ratings so they kept rerunning it for a while uh -huh. and back to vincent price yeah. since i left my segues yeah. uh right into our final selection for the perfect halloween thriller this is vincent price michael jackson is the thriller and you dig it <laughs> <laughs> One of the biggest videos of all time. I actually think it might be the most successful video of all time. Yes. If someone says November Rain, I'm going to try to erase that from my memory because November <laughs> Rain is terrible. It's so excessive. Oh, I know. A thriller I know. is the perfect love letter to horror yes, movies. Absolutely. Michael Jackson loves spooky old scary tales. You know, he probably grew up on Hammer Films. And you got John Landis, who just came off American Werewolf uh -huh. in London. And it's not just the video. The song is great. Oh, I know. I know. It's one of the greatest songs ever written. And if you don't like it, then you're not 
smart. Immediately after Thriller, <laughs> Michael Jackson stopped being nerd. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> Off the Wall is one of the greatest albums ever made. Uh -huh. Thriller is a close second of his. And then Bad just kind of like, oh, this is what happens when you have too much success and you have to try to top it in some way. Yeah. And then it just becomes this huge tower of, ah, that's a lot of production value. Yeah, right. but I, I don't really like the song. Right. Yeah, uh, poor Michael. That's that's all I have to say. Like, he is such a tragic figure. Just his arrested development, basically, is his biggest problem is yeah. You know. God, he's having so much fun in this video. Yeah, totally. So he saw American Werewolf and he called up John Landis and he was like, can you please turn me into a monster? And John Landis was like, well, okay, let me call Rick Baker. So they got together and they did it. And they got Vincent Price to narrate. Yeah, the reason why Vincent Price is on this record is because of Peggy Lipton, who was married to Quincy Jones at the time. She and Vincent were old friends for whatever reason, I don't know. But He was probably on the Mod Squad or something. Yeah, right. Who knows? They really wanted this creepy talking part. And she was like, hey, you know who would be perfect is my friend Vincent Price. So they called him up and he came in. And Quincy was really nervous about it. Like, not because of, like, star power or anything, but because he, as a producer, knew that it's hard to get someone to talk over a song. And Vincent Price did it in two takes. And it was perfect. Nice. Yeah. And then later, actually, John Landis had to get him to come in again to do it because there were some synths in the track that couldn't be used for the music video. So he had to come in again and again, like he was done in 15 minutes. And John Landis was like, oh, you're amazing. This is incredible. So surprise, amazing at everything. I don't think there's a single performance of his that he phoned in. You know what my favorite performance of his, it sounds ridiculous, but my favorite is the Pretty Bunch episode with the Haunted Tiki. Oh, really? I love that episode. I love the Hawaii <laughs> 2 episode. And he comes in at the end, you're like, yeah! That's funny. I thought you were going to say Eggman or something. I, I, that's a weird thing. The minute I got done saying that, I started thinking of Egghead from Batman. I was like, nah. <laughs> I think Egghead's completely made up. I don't think that's part of the Batman lore at all. And I was like, did you just need a star character? I mean, did <laughs> Well, we got Vincent Price. Who do we have? Well, everybody else is taken. Make up something. <laughs> so this video and the, the song in particular, when I was a kid, I went to this daycare and I, this was like pre grade school. And every day we had time for exercise and the older kids got to pick what tape they played. They always picked thriller and then they would chase us around like they were monsters and it was really it was really oh, scary so that, that's actually my my earliest memory of thriller is just being chased around by fifth graders yeah my <laughs> earliest memory was being in a video store seeing the making of thriller ah. able to rent welcome to the making of thriller yeah. Apparently it was a huge seller, and yeah. I was like, why would you, wait, is that the title of the movie, The Making of Thriller, or is it Thriller, and this is, what is this? Okay. <laughs> and then, it, like, a year later, someone showed me the video, like, they kept rerunning, uh -huh. of course. I think it, it was on their constant circuit, yeah. you know, especially around Halloween. Yeah. So, at the time, music videos were really cheap to make, and John Landis needed a lot of money to make Thriller, and the record label was like, uh, no. Because this was actually the last single that came out of the album Thriller, and it was on its way down the charts. And they didn't want to throw a bunch of money into an album that they thought was going down. So they were like, no, we're not giving you this money. So Landis decided, well, I'll put together this 45-minute featurette thing that is the making of Thriller, and I'm going to pitch it to MTV and Showtime and, you know, like all 
these places and try to get them to buy it, and that'll be the funding for doing it. And so they did. Yeah, MTV paid $250,000 for the exclusive rights to show it, and then after that on pay cable, Showtime bought it. I think Vestron Video actually released it for the, the home video market. So they, they definitely made their money back. Is it weird that there's a whole process of buying and selling of music videos? Yeah. Don't you think that it was... I always thought that it was just like a fair... Ch- you know, like, okay, well, we promote your album by showing your video, so you just give us the video. Uh-huh. And that's it. Right, <laughs> you would think so, right? But, yeah, whatever. Mm. The first time I heard about it, I think it was like 93 or something. I was like, yeah, Gene Simmons was on uh, MTV News. He goes, yeah, you guys aren't buying our music videos anymore, so we have to sell <laughs> much music up in Canada. Oh. I was like, what is he talking about? Why would you sell these? I guess it's a whole thing. Just Sounds like a ridiculous concept. Yeah, right. But yes, Thriller is a definitely way to top it. It's weird that with the success of Thriller, there's been hardly any new scary songs. Every Halloween, you turn on the radio mm-hmm. and it's Monster Mash, this, and then what's the one by Stevie Wonder? Um, oh, Superstitious? Superstition, and I put a spell on you, ooh, ooh, and that's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're like, nobody else has any scary songs at all, and the rest of them's like, oh yeah, but you just can't play them on radio because they're like death metal. Oh, that's true, that's true. Like, it tends to be like the Marilyn Manson crowd that's just making these songs. Top 40 radio has no choice right <laughs> which i love those old songs those old like halloween novelty songs i love them like the john zachary songs and you know monster mash and all that stuff i love it but there's like 12 of them total in, <laughs> in the entire history of music and yet christmas it's like hell oh, another version <laughs> right. of i saw mommy kissing santa claus uh, you've got to be kidding me uh, i mean this whole racks filled with new christmas music yet every halloween you trek out and it's like oh it's the theme song from halloween and thriller okay <laughs> So thank you for being the guest on the show. And that was an excellent playlist. You, you mix it up. And usually when people are talking about horror movies, it's usually the more gore heavy, the more uh-huh. recent stuff. But there's definitely an audience for stuff that, you know, you could watch with your family. Yeah, you know, yeah. Or, or, or just get, a, you know, something more old school. Right. You know, Halloween is supposed to be fun to me. So, you know, like, watch a fun movie. Watch a horror comedy. Like, watch something that you're going to enjoy. Uh, it might be a little scary. That's cool. You know, that's part of the fun as well. But it doesn't have to be you know slasher movies all the time so yeah i gotta tell you the, the horror movies i usually go back to almost always have a sense of humor mm-hmm. about them because the fear will eventually go away but if you love the characters you're having fun watching it and maybe you get a jump or two out of it that is i think in my mind the perfect halloween movie I yes should say. all right so that is it for us here check us out on facebook under video nights is there anything you want to plug before we go just you know vincent price's laugh you can go to ouchmyego.com you'll see the podcast every other week new episode of some uh vincent price movies regular horror movies as well but we like to uh do a little bit more than just like a, a recap or a replay of the film so yeah if you did just vincent price movies he would have like 50 right. episodes done. right we, actually he did way more than that but they weren't all scary right movies. exactly and you know the laugh part vincent price's laugh the name comes from thriller so you know yes. there you go all right everybody have a good night and i'm gonna show right, it thanks now. michael <laughs> What? <laughs>